ask Assembly Broadcast to keep all members in the spotlight for the first five agenda items. Members, are we content to proceed through the agenda? Agreed. Okay. Uh, no apologies have been received. No. Nope. Uh, anybody aware of any apologies? Pat? Matthew? No, I'm here. I'm okay. Okay. Sorry, sir. Are you asking me for Matthew? Yeah, no, I'm asking if he's been in contact with you. Yeah, he is. He is making it today. Sorry, sir. Yeah. Okay. Ready him. Uh, declaration of interest. Mind members that are obliged to declare any relevant financial or other interests at each committee meeting as applicable. Uh, there is a, a item of interest that I am declaring an interest in in the closed session at the end, of which I will be asking the deputy chair to uh, chair the meeting at that stage of the of the proceedings for that. Move on to the next item of business, uh, chairperson's business. Um, you'll be aware of the written statement from the minister, and you'll have seen the press release that came out today. I think at 11:30. The Minister has issued a written statement uh, advising of further allocations to 2021, and this is at page 3 of the table items. The Minister advises that HM Treasury is not to permit, I say again, not to permit carryover flexibility in respect to the $200 million which has been received by the Executive just before Christmas. After allocation, he advised that around uh, $250 million in resource, $10 million in capital, and around 56 million in financial transactions capital remain to be allocated. I'm asking members to note the statement. Says this agreed. 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 Uh, moving on to the victims' pension. Uh, it's understood that the Secretary of State has agreed to meet the Executive Ministers in respect to the payment of the victims' troubles pension scheme. I'd like to seek uh, members' agreement to write to the minister seeking clarification as to whether any unspent resources from 21-22 can be used to pay for this scheme. Uh, just so that we are aware, uh, I have written separately, not in my role as the Chairman of the Finance Committee, but I have written as Leader of the Ulster Unionist Party both to the Finance Minister and to the Secretary of State, and our Justice Spokesman has written to the uh, Minister of Justice. Uh, obviously, we have not seen any bids or any allocations bids. And the figure of $28 million that has been quoted in the social media, I think, by the Secretary of State, I am not aware of where that has come from, because I have not seen that in any, uh, any sort of bids coming through, either from Justice or, indeed, from the Minister of Finance that he's brought through. But if you are, oh, Jim, if you, if you are, if you are content, uh, I think I would like us, as a committee, to write to the Minister to seek clarification as to just whether unspent resources in 21-22 will be used to pay for the victims' pension scheme. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, should we not also be inquiring of the Minister? Um, presumably he will now amend the draft budget. And uh, When are we going to see that, and how does that affect the programme and the timing? Indeed. And I think there is another item in the agenda where we are coming up. We will be discussing about the budget process and issues around accelerated passage. So maybe, Jimmy, you'd be content to take that then, because I believe there will be an action to come from us from that, where we may, uh, we may consider writing both to the Speaker and to the Minister to inform them of our, of our concerns of where we are in this budgetary process. Are we content to write to the Minister seeking clarification about unspent resources in 21-22 to be used to pay for the Victims' Pension Scheme? Are we content? Absolutely. Great. Sorry, Sorry. Sorry. Philip, go ahead. So, yeah, I just would be 
keen to see the the wording of, of the letter, given the fact that uh, you, you did say that the uh, British Secretary of State has uh, long last agreed to meet ministers uh, with regard to this issue. So, I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, I don't want to prejudice the, out- the outcome of that meeting, but you know, I, I think in the letter that you're writing on behalf of the committee, it, the word "could" maybe should be used rather than "should." I mean, because obviously, as you're well aware of, there, there, there is the disagreement about who actually pays for it, whether it comes out of the, the budget here, whether it's the British Secretary of State, and I would imagine that the executive members will be uh, at that meeting asking the British Secretary of State to come up with finances to pay for this. I'm content to put the word could in, but let's we'll circulate the letter in draft anyhow, it's, as a normal procedure. We'll probably do that tomorrow, so you'll see that. But I want to get it off fairly quickly. Chair, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Uh, sorry, and I, I apologise for being late there and missing the conversation that you've just had and countered on this. This goes back to the issue I raised, I think it was last week or the week before, with regards to the issue around why was the pressure or the bid from the executive office, I think, of £21.3 million, if my memory serves me right. Why, why was that not picked up and allocated and put inserted into the draft budget. Uh, now that we have this uh, ruling from the appeal court, what are we going to, as Jim has said, alluded to, what are we going to, when are we going to see that now incorporated into the draft budget for next year? But then the issue I raised also, uh, and I raised it with the Justice Committee, uh, or the Justice, I raised it in the Justice Committee with the Justice officials. Uh, what can we do with the money that may well be returned to the mm-hmm. Treasury uh, this year. Uh, and if that goes back to Treasury, that becomes Treasury's money. Mm-hmm. So if we can then hold that, then you could argue, well, that's actually Treasury's money uh, that we, we will use to furnish then commence the pension. So it's the three aspects. When is it going to be in the draft budget? Why did you refuse the 21.3 million pressure the Executive Office had alerted you to? And how are we going to try and receive or restore some of this money that we could well be handing back? Um, speaking as the chairman, and indeed as somebody who likes to see a bit of exactitude uh, in budgeting processes in Northern Ireland, the other figure that I didn't recognise, and I hate seeing government by tweet, I thought with the demise of a certain US president we'd moved on from that, but the figure of $28 million was raised in the tweet from, I think it was from the Secretary of State, and to do that, and I don't recognise where that figure has come from. That's another area of confusion that I have, because my understanding it was in the region of 21.7. There is a figure in there for 47,000 pounds for setting up of a sort of a, a victims um, part of a secretariat. There was a figure that was mentioned somewhere in the region of about uh, four to five million pounds that was as part of that process. So, and whether that's a, an aggregation of the whole piece, again, I think we probably need to have, see some clarity. And uh, please correct me, but I haven't seen any. But I haven't seen anywhere in any bidding process those figures. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm willing to be corrected. Has, has anybody of the committee seen any of those? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Philip, what we'll do is we'll circulate, we'll circulate the letter and uh, we'll move on from there. Um, next, next, so we move on to next item, cladding intervention. Uh, you will have been aware from the news today that our government has indicated it is to meet replacement cladding costs for leaseholders 
and residential tower blocks over 18 metres in height, and will provide long-term loans for leaseholders in buildings over 18 metres in England. And our government is also to introduce levies on new developments and a new UK residential property tax. And I think they use the word UK residential property tax. Um, obviously, with in view of our uh, investigation and sort of review of the regulations on fire safety regulations as well, and this has been a moving situation. You'll also have been aware, and because it's in the media, the comments by um, people from Kingspan. Uh, reference what they knew and what they didn't know about sort of fire safety and fire safety regulations. I think I would like to write to the minister to seek clarification on whether the payments, as been announced today in Westminster, will be extended to leaseholders in Northern Ireland and the tax to the residential property sector in Northern Ireland. Because I think we do need to see clarification on that. Are we content? Are we agreed? Great. Uh, Northern Ireland. Just... Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Through the chair, uh, it's likely that then Colin would be part of the 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 allocation. I, th event I think it. Money. I think it would be Melissa. But the question is, um, how do we extend um, resident UK residential property tax rules in Northern Ireland? That's the bit I'm not certain about because I think that's a devolved matter. Sort of residential rating property taxes, so those issues, unless it's been deemed something a bit like stamp duty, I'm not sure, but we do need to get some clarification on that. The, the, uh, and I think the sooner we get some clarification on that, the better. The, yeah. Sorry, Sorry, go ahead, Matthew. The only um, rates is devolved, but it's not, the technicalities of taxation, it's not technically a property tax. I think I'm right in saying it's not technically a property tax. It is a different type of what's called a rate. Obviously, is it effectively a taxation? Um, uh, yeah. If it's got I mean, with UK, you would, it would suggest it's UK wide, and obviously, stamp duty, uh, SLRT. Yeah. SL, have I got that right? Stamp duty, SL, whatever it is. Um, is UK wide and not devolved. Yeah, so I think we've clarity is what's required. Are we content? Great. Yep. Uh, next item, uh, Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. The Northern Ireland Affairs Committee is asked to meet informally with statutory committee chairman, probably in March, in order to discuss issues relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol. If you are content for me to meet with the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee and report back to the Committee for Finance, are we agreed? And before we do that, I will canvass views from all members of the committee. So it will not just be my particular views, but I will canvass all views from all members of the committee. If you would like to feed those into me, uh, so that I will give a, uh, I will give a, uh, a series of views and perspectives from across the broad spectrum of views we have within this committee on this particular issue, to say the least. Okay, thank you. Well, I should say, Chair, if at least it's worth saying, with the DUP and STLP are represented on that committee, so we're, we have a, <laughs> we can be sure that we hear back an accurate report of what's said. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's right. Claire owes me a few. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, moving on to the draft minutes of proceedings for 3rd of February. Uh, draft minutes of the meeting on 3rd of February are at page 7. There are three areas in respect of the name of the clerk for the meeting uh, typo at 3.3 and at 10.4. The action was to write to both the Department of Finance and Economy regarding underspent schemes and support for driving schools. If we are content for the draft minutes and are accurate, reckon repeat. Proceeding subject to these amendments, are we agreed? 
And we're happy for the minutes to be published on the website. Thank you. There are no minutes arising, matters arising. If we can welcome on to the next item is the uh, Ulster University Economic Policy Centre draft budget. Uh, Clark's briefing note at page 16. Economic Policy Centre budget evidence paper at page 21. Correspondence from the Department regarding EU structural funds and health service pay pressures, page 40. And the Department's consultation document on the draft budget is on page 44. If we're content, can we bring up on Starleaf? Can we bring up Gareth and Richard? Gareth and Richard, are you there? Yes, Mr. Chairman. Good afternoon. Hi, Gareth. Uh, we've got Richard. Yep. Good afternoon, guys. How are you? Hey, excellent. Something works today. Well done. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs> okay. Uh, members, on page 12 of the table paper items, which includes a letter from the Minister regarding the establishment of a fiscal council, just so you're aware. Under new decade, new approach, the terms of reference and membership of the Council are to be agreed with, the, uh, with our Government, and the Minister is to engage with the Chief Secretary of the Treasury on this. The Minister advises that he is confident, confident that the Fiscal Council can be established before the end of, the financial, of this financial year. Okay, just so the year this financial year? This financial year. Hmm. So when did we receive this? This is tabled papers. Uh, it is at page 12, tabled items. You might care to have a read of that as we go through. Garth, can I ask you to make your opening statement, please? Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the invitation to provide evidence to your committee uh, this afternoon. You will have my um, uh, our uh, submission uh, that, we, that we've uh, made available to you. Um, I will make a brief opening statement, no more than a few minutes, uh, and then my colleague Richard Johnson, uh, the Deputy Director of the Economic Policy Centre, will also make a short opening statement, and then we're both happy to take any questions from you and your committee. Um, I will focus my initial comments on the economic context and the draft budget itself, and Richard will say a few words about the economic policies the Executive should consider implementing as part of the rebuilding process. My first uh, comment then, as I say, is in respect to the broader economic context. We're, we're clearly in a very challenging economic situation on a scale unprecedented in, in living memory. Uh, the speed at which events have unfolded and the lack of any comparable reference point uh, creates significant challenges for, for governments around the world, both in terms of uh, dealing with the health crisis at hand and also putting in place appropriate policies to mitigate against the uh, unprecedented economic fallout. Um, economic forecasts remain highly uncertain and estimates of the timeline uh, to recover to pre-COVID levels of economic activity vary significantly. For example, as, as recently as November, the Office of Budget Responsibility estimated it would take until Q4 2022, so the end of next year. Uh, but then just last week, the Bank of England produced a very upbeat forecast which suggested the UK would return to pre-COVID levels as soon as Q1 2022, so just this time next year. Um, now this is based on the pace of the vaccine rollout programme, uh, but also consumer spending recovering very quickly and, and business investment rising on, on the back of higher sales. Uh, so economic sentiment is changing uh, very quickly and it can ebb and flow. We can move from a, a positive to, to a negative uh, scenario depending on, on prevailing circumstances. My second uh, comment there is in relation to uh, the change in funding and income uh, within the, the budget between this current year, 2021, and the budget year, 2021-22. 
Um, as I'm sure you and your, your members uh, will, will be well aware, the largest source of income comes through the Northern Ireland Block, block Grant in the form of uh, resource Dell, so for operating or running costs, capital Dell, and financial transactions capital, which is for loans or equity investments to, to the private sector. Overall, this settlement is flat. It increases by just 0.13%. Uh, uh, now, in addition to the, the core deal, the Northern Ireland Executive receives funding from a range of other sources. So, of particular note, there was $350 million of new decade, new approach funding uh, was made available in this current year, in 2021, for general pressures as a one-off payment. That's not available uh, in, in the budget year. Uh, there are also limited details on the UK Shared Prosperity Fund, which replaces EU structural funds. Uh, but it's understood that the, the SPF, the Shared Prosperity Fund, will not provide a full replacement for EU structural funds, and it will not be devolved. Uh, so this obviously raises questions around the basis on which funding will be allocated. Uh, and there's also a reduction in fresh start funding this year compared to last. So the one notable increase uh, identified in the budget is that the executive will borrow £140 million in 21-22 through the reinvestment and reform initiative uh, for capital spending. Uh, there was no borrowing in, in this current year. So overall, this presents a very challenging funding settlement, income settlement. So my third and final comment then relates to the allocation of the funding across departments. Uh, the Department of Finance presented the, the draft budget for 21-22 against a baseline uh, position for, for each department. Now, that baseline is taken from the previous year's budget, but as they have indicated, it takes some adjustment for factors such as time-bound allocations. Uh, now, the funding allocation presented in the draft budget against the baseline suggests an above inflation increase on average across uh, departments' resource budgets. Uh, now, this seems at odds with the very challenging funding settlement that I just spoke about previously. But separately, in our evidence paper uh, submitted, we set out a comparison between the draft budget as presented by DOF against last year's uh, budget outcome. Now, this comparison shows a much more challenging uh, funding allocation across the ministerial departments, and, and I suppose it's more consistent with the funding settlement. But I would stress that neither analysis provides an exact like-for-like -like comparison. And in future, we would suggest that the baseline for the budget year should be compared against the baseline for the previous year. And in addition, one-off items of expenditure each year uh, could also be set to allow for, for a more informed uh, response. However, based on the limited analysis that is possible as an economic policy centre, and that will be obviously our area of focus, it is concerning that additional funding does not seem to have been allocated to support the rebuilding of the economy post-COVID. Um, now, on the capital side, very briefly, a significant increase has been identified with the largest in financial terms being allocated to infrastructure and, and then health. So, in summary, Chair, uh, a very challenging funding settlement. Um, on the resource Dale side, it's difficult to provide detailed insight into the allocation, but it looks uh, like very limited funding for, for economic rebuilding. Uh, now, we've made a number of other comments in respect of the budget, and we're happy to discuss those with the committee, but I'll now hand over to my colleague, uh, Richard Johnson. Thanks, Gareth. Okay, thank you, Gareth, and thank you for the opportunity to speak here today, Chair and Committee. Um, my name is Richard Johnston. I'm the Deputy Director of the Economic Policy Centre, 
um, research areas focus on competitiveness, automation, future of work, uh, behavioral and corporation tax and those sorts of things. So as we look at the, the budget as it's presented, um, as Gareth says, it's certainly a, a challenging funding statement, but also it's worth bearing in, in, in mind the context in which it's set. Um, our identifiable PE per capita um, still remains above the other uh, UK devolved nations. Um, the health budget, which as Gareth said, is now around 50% of, of the budget is equal to the total income tax, national insurance, alcohol and tobacco duty take annually in Northern Ireland. So again, the focus on reform that will come through from the budget um, will probably be uh, one of the greatest challenges and be exacerbated in future years if that continues. The research that I've carried out is in terms of competitiveness, and that's how I'll frame a lot of the, the policy discussions. The competitiveness uh, research indicates that skills, infrastructure, um, and green and digital are some of our um, key challenges going forward over the next number of years. Um, as we look to the likes of the green um, opportunities that we can see, obviously those are policies that are uh, contained within the, the budget document in more depth. Working from home is one thing that we need to consider. So what do we what do we mean in terms of our policies? What do we aim for in terms of congestion, uh, parking charges, all of those sorts of things and commuting? Um, and then how do we begin to say, for example, retrofit houses or office space or industrial space to reduce the need for imported um, heavy oils and those um, other fuels that are um, obviously environmentally damaging as well. In terms of skills, that's one area in which uh, we know that there's a significant challenge. We would say that we have a world-class education system, but the reality is that a number of other countries are moving ahead of Northern Ireland. So countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Czech Republic are becoming more competitive in terms of educational outcomes. And we still spend, um, again, more on a per capita basis than all the other parts of the UK, with the exception of Scotland. In terms of infrastructure, and I'll declare an interest here as I'm a, a board member of Warren Point Harbour, we do need to think about how we invest in efficiencies within our infrastructure um, to offset some of the NI protocol frictions and ensure that access and egress to Northern Ireland is as uh, efficient and productive as possible. So those are the, the key areas in which we will focus. And as Gareth said, we're happy to take questions on other areas of the paper that we've submitted as, as evidence. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Gareth, and thanks, Richard. Um, obviously, one of the things that you've been trying to do is, like us here in the Finance Committee, is trying to hit a moving target, because uh, we have seen um, trying to get some sort of, using that horrible terminology, granularity on the budget and the budget process and sort of monies that are in. But one of the things that you know the ministers keep on referring to the fact it's a standstill budget, but it appears that the additional funding that was coming under new decade, new approach and which was required to meet some significant sort of one-off costs like teachers' back pay. This has largely been replaced by Barnet Consequentials, by what's been happening in the rest of our country and some of the announcements from the Chancellor. Um, hasn't the Executive done relatively well, particularly if the remaining outstanding payments from the UK Government are sort of confirmed, because there's still a substantial amount of unspent money in a year? I think... The <laughs> uh, quite a pejorative uh, question, uh, Mr. Chairman. I think that the 
there have been significant challenges in spending um, all of the money that was made available um, this year because of, and, and I think a lot of the key reason for that would have been uh, a number of new programs had to be set up to deal with the very specific uh, COVID challenge. Uh, so there have been uh, a number of, uh, over the years, over uh, several um, years, a lot of people have made the comment that uh, Northern Ireland, and Richard referred to it in his opening comments, Northern Ireland receives um, quite a significant uh, or a greater proportion of funding for public services than, than other parts of the UK. Now, there may be some reasons why it's more expensive to run public services in Northern Ireland, a more rural dispersed uh, population, for, for example. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the, the need for reform, and we've, we've highlighted that in our in our paper, the need for reform in the delivery of public services is, is fundamentally important in order to get uh, the best outcome for the money that's made available. Okay. Thanks. Um, one of the things that we keep on hearing about is sort of how we can get sort of shovel-ready projects going and major capital projects, but we have seen numerous reports coming in about our inability to deliver on capital projects, to spend the money that's been allocated, money that's been shifted from one year to the next. Um, your own university seems to be the world's bottomless pit when it comes to FTC, and I think the money and the overspent spent on sort of York Street alone could have built the York Street interchange at least one and a half times. Um, but we seem to be remarkably bad at using that money to help the economy. And we're talking about RRI, but of a potential of 200 million in RRI that we could have, I think we've only seen bids for about 140 million of it. So what's your perspective on how we can sort of help use capital projects to sort of kickstart the economy to get ourselves outside the other side of it? Bearing in mind, of course, that much of the construction industry, a lot of them will be looking at the, the other inherent problems we have in doing business in Northern Ireland and being looking to massive projects like HS2 and seeing that as, some, as somehow a better use of their resources. I think well, there's a number of aspects that, that you've raised there, uh, Mr. Chairman. One, uh, I would say, in, is it in respect of how we manage budgets. Uh, and, and one of the points that we make in, in our evidence submission is, is the importance of multi-year budgets and also uh, the potential for greater end-year flexibility. And I think what that allows um, government to do or departments to do is to be able to manage, in general, manage money uh, more, uh, more effectively. Now, we haven't done any work specifically, any research specifically, on uh, the, the challenges with um, capital budgets or, or with capital projects. Um, but it, you're absolutely right in that it, it does appear to be an issue of um, within Northern Ireland in terms of taking forward um, capital projects and, and getting them off the ground. Uh, now, th there is perhaps, and maybe there's a role for a, uh, an independent fiscal council here who, who should be looking, or part of the remit will be to look at um, how effective government spending 
uh, how effective government is spending its money. Um, and given the importance of, of capital spending and a, and a world-class infrastructure to make your economy more, uh, more competitive, uh, being able to get uh, the maximum uh, outcome or output from your, your capital spend uh, is important to achieve. May I just add to that, uh, Gareth, as well? Um, I was a part of the uh, advisory panel on infrastructure earlier in the year, and a lot of the evidence that we, we captured from over 100 stakeholders and interested parties focused on the long-term nature of strategic planning and how bringing into Northern Ireland the experience from some of those infrastructure panels that were um, in place across the world uh, could actually help. So there certainly is the potential there for bringing in um, other people from outside Northern Ireland. As an economist, we would always focus on saying now is the time for government to be spending on those shovel-ready projects and making sure that government fulfills some of that consumer uh, spending gap that exists at this point in time. So we, we would absolutely encourage that, that spending to, to take place at this point in time, and both from the, the public sector and private sector. Um, and especially, again, uh, looking back at the ports and airports, uh, some of those are public corporations and some of those have shovel-ready projects as well. Um, if we, for example, look at airports, there may be no better time to resurface runways and all of that sort of type of activity. So there certainly are um, infrastructure projects that will create jobs, will create a cash injection into the local economy, and they can present, they can present opportunities for apprenticeships for young people to get into employment um, through social clauses, and they can be geographically dispersed as well so that we have a regionally balanced and sustainable recovery, uh, and that capital injection then uh, supports the whole of Northern Ireland. Okay, thanks. And Mr. if I could just add to that point as well, or to, to build on that, I was talking to people in the construction sector as part of another project I was doing, and uh, the, the, the point that they were making was, particularly within private sector investment, um, or sorry, private sector uh, construction, there is a big demand to get existing projects completed. But the pipeline in terms of private sector projects, particularly for uh, hotels, office accommodation, there's significant uncertainty about the future pipeline there. So as Richard said, there's an opportunity now for public sector uh, investment to, to fill that gap. Matthew. Thank you, Chair. Thank you both um, for your evidence. Um, just like disconnect, because you've just given us a lot of very persuasive evidence on the economic context um, and how it links to the budget. And but, but I mean, the truth is that the the, the economic analysis chapter of the actual budget document feels completely disembodied from the actual. Uh, spending allocations. They, they, I mean, you've done a bit of linking the out, you know, potential outcomes to the economic context, but there's none of that really in the budget document. Was that? Would you say that's fair? I, I think. Well, one of the comments that we do make is that the the way the budget document set out, it just allocates funding to departments. No, there's absolutely no detail within that about how that money is going to be spent. Uh, within our evidence paper, I think it would be very helpful to have funding allocated uh, along the PFG program for government uh, priorities. Uh, that would allow people uh, to see, challenge, advise on 
um, the the extent to which those priorities are being funded. I think that's that, that would be how I would present it. It's very difficult in terms of how the, the finances or the funding set out within the uh, within the budget document to understand exactly how it's going to be spent and the effectiveness of it. And I guess for that, there's very little sense of prioritisation. Then, there's, I mean, there's you've said. I mean, I sort of will infer from what you said that that. I mean, to me, the, the economic chapter at the front of the budget reads like it might. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with it per se, but it could be describing the weather in terms of how related it is to the rest of the document. Um, uh, but what you're also saying is basically there's no clear link between spending allocations and PFG outcomes, though there are in some of the chapters references to the now five-year-old draft PFG from 2016. Do you have any sense of why those are included? Is it just departments have continued to use them as placeholders, just in the absence of something, in the absence of something more uh, updated? I, I think they're waiting for the PFG to be agreed, Mr. Chairman. Um, Sorry, did you, Richard, did you want to come in there? I don't know if you... Yeah, I think the if we go back to, again, the framework that competitiveness can give us, if we look at the drivers of competitiveness in terms of education, R&D&I, infrastructure spend, and all of that sort of stuff, which then boosts productivity, um, and we have a larger private sector, which will hopefully then fund you know better world-class uh, public services and can also uh, drive better environmental and social outcomes, that does give us a good framework with which to link from the expenditure inputs through the environmental factors and activities that take place and into the outcomes for society that we're trying to target. But again, that's a slightly different exercise, which is beyond the, the budget document. I think the other thing that your comments bring to the fore is how we can focus on the areas in which we need to engage most. Competitiveness will give us a bit of a roadmap in terms of where we need to focus most resource and most of our attention in order to catch up with other nations. But we also should be looking at an objective needs-based assessment of spend. So where are the areas in which we are relatively uh, over-provided or relatively under-provided and how we can, we can move resources around? Again, if we look at the areas in which we do least well, so say, for example, um, some of the, the, the services in which um, we get the, the least good outcomes, would we be willing to stop spending on, say, the bottom 10% of programs and reallocate that into other activities? Certainly, the, the program evaluation framework that goes on within government should help in making those decisions, but you're back to getting good quality evidence in order to drive forward those better public expenditure decisions for the benefit of society in the longer term. There's also been a lot of um, evidence, or there's been a lot of analysis suggesting that Northern Ireland uh, is one of the regions that will be uh, where basically the economic impact of COVID will be worse. Um, and that was, we were talking about um, uh, how long it would take us to get back to where we were pre last spring. Well, I suppose there's a a long running debate about how long it took us to get back to where we were pre autumn two thousand and eight. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Because it seems like there there is, in addition to all the other you know all the other existing challenges around skills, Brexit and the protocol, everything we have to deal with there. There is just this inherent thing, which is, it looks like we and our economy is going to suffer more than other places from 
the from COVID? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that initially then and I'll let Richard follow on. Um, yeah, as I said in my opening comments, the, the extent to which or the, the timeline for the economy to return to pre-COVID levels of, of activity at the UK level, even between the OBR and the Bank of England, within a few months, they've changed their, their timeline by uh, from, from the end of, of uh, 2022 to the start of 2022. Uh, so it is a very dynamic um, forecasting environment, let's put it like that. So there, there is a high level of uncertainty. In terms of how long it will take for, for Northern Ireland to return to uh, the, the Q4 2019 um, levels of economic activity, that's, there, there's greater uncertainty again, but it will inevitably uh, take a, a longer period of time, 12 to 18 months, possibly uh, longer. You're absolutely right in what you say um, there, there is significant debate about whether or not the Northern Ireland economy, from a, a GVA perspective, has even um, did ever go back to its, its 2008 level of, of economic activity, depending on which measure uh, you, you look at. But one of the things that we have been, uh, we as an economy, have, have, have been poor at is in recovering uh, from economic setback at the same pace as a lot of other um, developed nations or regions. And, 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 and I'll turn over to the people to give us someone else a chance to say, Chair, but um, one specific, and this is difficult because this is so, like every economist in the world is obviously struggling to um, uh, accurately forecast, but is do, you know, doing their best to analyse potential factors. One of them is, you, in your paper, you talk about we basically have a, rel a low business churn rate. It would seem obvious that one of impact of COVID is going to be um, uh, a, poss a possible chill effect on business starts uh, for obvious reasons. Basically, you know, if you have a black swan, a once in a century black swan event, which um, is shutting down lots of small businesses for an undefined period of time, it will inherently make it a lot less attractive to say, I'm going to go and start up a small shop or whatever it is. Um, uh, are we particularly exposed to that? It would seem that we are, given we already have a relatively lower level of entrepreneurship here. We do have a, I know we have a, like a significant number of, we have a high, a relatively high number of micro businesses and sole traders, etc. But a lot of those are, um, uh, are, are are more established. But we have a seem to have a lower level of micro business starts and entrepreneurship. Is there a concern there that we that that will be damaged in a kind of structural way? Yeah. Um... I think that's it's worth noting that the self-employed have been more impacted than the employed, um, particularly because the employed have been supported quite quite well through the CGRS scheme. Um, at this point in time, you can see that the Labour Force Survey data indicates that the the reduction in self-employed and the move into unemployment and inactivity is relatively higher than those from those from the employment side. It is a concern. We have always had a lower level of business starts. We have a very low level of churn. So we don't have what's called a creative destruction, Joseph Schumpeter's theory, where the least uh, competitive exit the market and that increases the, the average overall. And that's effectively what I was talking about in terms of the, the policy framework as well, um, probably removing the bottom 5 or 10%. In terms of what we have, I suppose I would characterize it as disruption squared between COVID and Brexit, but we certainly have 
um, an overhang of the problems that we had um, prior to COVID and Brexit becoming an issue. So we have lower levels of uh, productivity, we have higher levels of inactivity, we have problems with innovation, and we have um, relatively high healthcare and childcare costs um, right across um, our competitor nations. So there's certainly quite a bit to be done there in terms of stimulating an entrepreneurial culture. Um, and that's been a challenge that Invest and I and the councils have been focused on for really for, since 2001 or two. Okay, thanks very much indeed, Matthew. Okay. Just a very quick one, just for us, Jim Alster, come in. Um, you said one of the issues was, of course, is that none of the budget is actually linked to any of the PFG activity. Yeah, here we are in a situation where we've got this draft budget before us, and the PFG, the, the PFG we're supposed to be working to, is not even due to be sort of reported in in April, and they're still asking evidence for it. So, is there a, not a significant disconnect between? sort of the budgetary process in the PFG, and does that not indicate there's something more fundamentally um, skewed about how we are trying to do budgeting and governance here in Northern Ireland? I think, uh, Chair, the approach that they've taken, uh, it, it's, it's the same approach that has been taken year on year for, for, for several years. And I suppose with there's an opportunity now with an assembly, uh, a finance committee uh, in, in place to, who can provide the appropriate challenge to perhaps change how uh, some of the decisions are made and how some of the information is uh, is presented? Um, because, and, and I think that there is a there is a desire to see uh, from a, a democratic electoral point of view for for the the voting public to see how funding is allocated to the priorities that they and, the, and their political leaders care about most. Okay, thanks, Jim. Yeah, good afternoon. Is the Irish Sea border helping or hindering our economy? I, I think the. Uh, I mean, clearly, we're, we're early days into the uh, the operation of, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, it's quite clear that there are uh, some uh, significant issues with the operation of that. Uh, protocol that are detrimental to uh, to the local economy. Um, I, I think that w what we have to hope for is um, significant effort on both sides, on both the UK and the EU side, uh, to to reach um, a, an agreement in the operation of that protocol that uh, limits friction or checks to those that are absolutely uh, necessary and do not harm the economic, social, cultural fabric of Northern Ireland in terms of its links north, south and east, west. Have you read the NI manufacturing report? I haven't seen that, uh, Chair. Well, I think when you do, you'll see just how devastating it could be for the manufacturing sector, who, of course, rely so much for the provisions from a GB uh, of goods uh, and raw materials coming in. So one wouldn't have to be an economist, would one, to know that if you fetter the trade with your biggest market and supplier, you're doing inevitable damage to the economic growth in the region of Northern Ireland. Does that not simply follow as a logic? 
that it's it's having a negative economic uh, impact. In in terms of, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers to hand, but in terms of north south compared to east west trade. Um, imports from exports to the Republic of Ireland are in the region of five to six billion pounds a year. East-West trade, the similar figure for for East-West is about 16 to 17 billion. So there is a very, very significant uh, East-West trade um, going that and we need to to minimise the the friction uh, in respect of that. But the very provisions of the protocol require friction, do they not? Um, I am for frictionless trade. I am not defending uh, the protocol. It's as simple as that. If you are for frictionless trade, you can't be for the protocol. It is a friction machine. Or Brexit. It's about ah, imposing friction on trade restrictions on trade from GB to Northern Ireland. So I'm wondering why an economist is being so hesitant about the inevitable conclusion that there therefore is significant economic damage to the economy of Northern Ireland. You don't have to be politically correct here, Gareth. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I wasn't, it wasn't my intention to be politically correct, and I'm, I'm not um, suggesting that any other friction or the Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's currently operating, is good for the Northern Ireland economy. It's not. Um, what I am suggesting, I, I recognise that there, given the nature of uh, where we are, there is a need for some mechanism that um, uh, facilitates Brexit. And what I would call for is that the the Northern Ireland Protocol is implemented in a way that minimises those frictions as much as possible. Because, but I, I agree with the point that in, in terms of how it's been uh, operated at, at the moment, it is having a detrimental economic impact. And things continue. What you've been saying is just a contradiction. You cannot implement the protocol in anything but a friction-causing way. If you remove the frictions, then you remove the protocol and vice versa. I think, Jim, you have made your point. Okay, I had one other question. I wanted to ask Richard, you gave us some figures about what our spend on health equated to in terms of um, tax take. Would you just, just repeat those for me? Health is in around 50% of our budget in Northern Ireland, and that would equate to our income tax, national insurance, alcohol and tobacco duty tax take. From Northern Ireland? Yeah. That's figures published by HMRC. So, in terms of what we spend on everything else, the other half of our expenditure, the other half of the block grant? Sorry, Jim. We spend about twelve billion per year in terms of the, the departmental expenditure, but overall in Northern Ireland this year I think we spent in around twenty eight billion. Now that includes the EME, the annually managed expenditure that comes in to fund pensions, uh, benefits and all of that sort of stuff that's dispersed by the Department for Communities. Mm-hmm. And then also the monies that came in through the CGRS, the self employed income support scheme, and C bills and B bills and those other UK wide supports. So 
Um, just looking at the broad figures, we would estimate that we've gone from around 24 billion uh, the year before to around 28 billion this year. So it's a significant increase. The departmental element that we have control over in the, uh, the departmental budgets and resource Dell and capital Dell is about 12 billion. Um, and the rest of that then is funded through obviously the Barnett formula. The fiscal deficit, um, according to the ONS methodology of calculation, could increase from around 10 billion to easily to 13 stroke 14 billion this year in Northern Ireland. And I realise there are um, different methodologies and um, different elements which may or may not be included in those, but that's uh, just a, but a back of the envelope version of the ONS. In straightforward terms, our annual expenditure of 28 billion, including Amy, uh, there's a shortfall there of how much? Well, potentially this year because of the increased COVID spending and the reduction in activity leading to a reduction in tax, it could be in the region of 13 to 14 billion, going up from 10 billion in previous years. Does it fill you with any confidence that we have a finance minister who's told it's, it's somewhere under 3 billion? Yeah, well, that, I suppose that's the, the point that it made. The, there's an Office of National Statistics definition of the fiscal deficit, and there's other definitions which then exclude things like um, national programs like defence and things like that. So there are different ways to calculate the deficit. Um, there are different views on that. And, you know, we've, I suppose we have to take all perspectives into account when we're discussing the, the public finance regime. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Gemma? Gemma? Yeah, thanks, Chair, and thanks, Gareth and Richard. Um, we know the employment pro prospects of young people have been the most impacted by COVID, which is really concerning. Um, and in your paper, you mention how the new unemployed may be directed to programmes that don't meet their needs and are under-resourced. Um, without an adequate budget, is there a way to avoid this happening? And or is there a way that the Department for the Economy could be preparing for this now to provide for these young people? Well, I, th I think the concern um, would be that in, in any given year, we, we need to be absolutely sure that A, we are, there's a number of elements to the skills programme. One is ensuring that as, as few young people as possible leave school with low or no qualifications. That's the first part to it. The second part to it then is about them making sure that uh, young people are directed into um, the appropriate career path and tertiary education routes for them, both for them in terms of their skill sets and, and their abilities, and also in terms of meeting the needs of the economy. And then the final component is in respect of uh, upskilling or reskilling people who are either a in the labour market at the moment or have just left the labour market and giving them the appropriate skills to move back in. So that that should happen in any given year. In a COVID year or a COVID second year, um, the the number of people that are likely to fall into either that particularly that reskilling um, bracket will increase, and it's it's difficult to see how you can do that without additional funding to support it. Yeah, I might add to that as well. Um, government is one of the largest employers in Northern Ireland as well. So for me, there are two aspects to this. Uh, and one is where government should be 
certainly leading by example and employing a number of those young people on apprenticeship schemes, getting them into gainful employment and supporting their skills development um, into a career that could potentially pivot them into some other um, occupation at some stage when the economy picks up. So, you know, you would like to see, say, for example, one or two or three of the departments taking forward that type of scheme. I think the government could certainly lead by example in that regard. The other thing is conditionalizing assistance to say, well, you know, if we're going to assist a firm that's been reasonably successful, what we're going to ask that firm to do is, for example, bring 15 people in on an apprenticeship, bring 15 people in through a social clause. Um, and if they're going to get assistance from government, they will support young people. They will engage in environmentally um, behavior that will improve the environment, or they'll engage in some other social or environmental good that supports other policy objectives in government. Because if we look across the, the economy, there are certainly sectors that have been devastated by COVID. So you've got arts, entertainments, and hotels, but equally there are other sectors that have done reasonably well. So ICT, logistics, pharma, um, and those are the types of, of companies that perhaps we could look to, to support those other policy objectives um, throughout, our, throughout our method of engagement, I suppose. Thank you. That's that's actually really interesting. Thanks. That's my questions, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, Gemma. Philip. Thank you, Chair. Uh, and, and thanks to both gentlemen for their, their presentation. Uh, I just want to come back on some of the points uh, made by Jim Alistair. I mean, he, he asked you about he asked you about the damage. Or he didn't ask you about the damage done to the economy from Brexit uh, when it's clear to anybody with any common sense that the protocol follows on from Brexit. And he also cherry-picked uh, the, the results of the survey from Manufacturing NI yesterday when Manufacturing NI themselves have said that despite some of the difficulties, manufacturers here in the North want the protocol to work. I think it's a job of sensible politicians to be working on that basis and coming up with uh, sensible ideas to resolve some of the difficult issues rather than grandstanding at committees here and elsewhere. In relation to uh, points in your paper, uh, I mean, you, you said a number of times that the, the budget uh, from the British Exchequer doesn't allow for creating uh, initiatives to uh, instigate economic growth, uh, short-term, medium-term, or, or long-term. And I mean, one of the points, I suppose, that you've laboured on in your paper is about the lack of a multi-year budget. Could you maybe just go in a bit more detail in terms of, in your opinion, the impact of not having a multi-year budget will have on the uh, executive's ability to plan long-term economic recovery? And then secondly, in terms of this Federation of Small Biz Business, and their submission, they praised the, the minister for his efforts supporting business trying to recover from COVID, uh, particularly in terms of rate relief uh, of certain sectors and a freeze on the regional rate. Do you think these policies are, I mean, are a sensible approach if we want to restart our economy once uh, COVID uh, eases off? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, for, for, for those two comments. On the, firstly, on the multi-year budget point, uh, yes, we we are uh, certainly suggesting, recommending that, that, that multi-year budgets allow large organisations to um, to plan and, and uh, make strategic decisions beyond the next twelve months. Um, in, in respect of the, the treasury decision, uh, I understand that it was the treasury's intention to run multi-year budgets, but given the significant uncertainty uh, around COVID. 
um, running a budget beyond uh, the, the, the next 12 month period uh, was seen to be too uncertain. Uh, and that approach is not unreasonable. Um, but what I would say, given that we are running just a one-year budget, well, we should be trying to move to a multi-year budget as quickly as possible. But uh, as long as we are operating a one-year budget, um, departments and treasury should be facilitating as much end-year flexibility uh, as possible to ensure that there isn't this dash to spend money uh, as we approach the end of the year in areas that may not deliver maximum value for money, uh, rather than rather than hand it back. And I understand that, that uh, temptation. So it would be, yes, let's go for multi-year budgets. And I do think Treasury, that's Treasury's intended direction. Um, but for, uh, for a period of time that we don't have that, we should have uh, end-year flexibility um, or greater end-year flexibility to facilitate moving money from one year to the next. In terms of your second piece, I think was, uh, you, you talked about uh, non-domestic rates relief and, and the committee will be aware that I did some work uh, for, for the Department of Finance in respect of um, rates relief uh, earlier in the year. And certainly in, in terms of some of the follow-up work that I have been doing, um, it has been seen as critical and fundamental uh, to allowing uh, large large numbers of firms to stay in business, um, and and without it, they would have uh, they, you know they would have had to close the doors, and and, and, and unemployment would have increased uh, accordingly. What I would say is I see uh, rates relief as being primarily in the uh, aiding survival of businesses um, rather than forming the plank of a uh, a building back better strategy and economic recovery strategy. So it's it's a it's one of the life support measures rather than sort of the uh, longer term uh, strategic uh, policies uh, for for the economy moving forward. Yeah, I think now is actually the time to be considering much more targeted support. So, for example, you know, as Gareth said, what we were looking at was a survival and a viability set of policies that were in place. Now, as we look towards hopefully the vaccine working and beginning to claw our way out of of the recession and back towards recovery. I think it is time for much more targeted support to look at those sectors that are in significant difficulty. And that might mean lobbying for an extension of CGRS on certain sectors, for example, arts, entertainment, hospitality and restaurants, and then the rest of the economy going back to something that is more or less normal. Um, in terms of digital supports, again, you know, certain sectors of the economy have done incredibly well and that raises the question of how do we how do we fund our public services as well and do we begin to look at the fourth industrial revolution consider our rating system and look at perhaps a and i know it's been discussed a digital sales tax in order to fund those um uh, and support those sectors that have been critically damaged over the last number of months um so i think as we as we move out of the situation that we're in, it'll move, move towards demand stimulation and market access rather than sort of life support, as we would see it for the business space. Okay, thank you. Pat. Pat. All right. Can you hear me? We can. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, and thanks very much, Gareth and Richard, for your presentation. And I suppose uh, 
what I was trying to look at there to, at various stages during uh, the last financial year, the departments have struggled to get rid of all of the capital money. I mean, how important is it to have speed ready projects in order to get them out there? And are you thinking of this along at the moment in order to stimulate uh, the economy? I mean, there could be projects brought forward now which would have a quick spin-off rather than that long-term spin-off, but we do have to think of the long-term eventually. And um, on the back of that, where are we? I mean, I, I mean, for, for the whole new green economy, I mean, surely we're sitting, I mean, can any of that money that's sitting here at the minute rather than hand back, is there a quick an opportunity to get any of that money to spend at this time now, before the financial year is out? Thank you. I'll let Richard, do you want to deal with most of that question in terms of your uh, your experience on the infrastructure panel? Uh, I, I, just to deal with the very last part, uh, Mr. Chair, I, I think particularly for uh, projects of a capital nature, we are we're very late in in the day now uh, to identify those projects and get the money spent before. Um, before the end of the uh, before the end of the financial year, and that that would be my sense. It, you know, it's it's six seven weeks out. Uh, hence, that's not to say there aren't significant capital projects, particularly in the whole green clean energy uh, arena that we can move to. But I'll, I'll allow Richard to deal with the substance of your of your question. Okay, thank you. Um, and it's a it's a great question because inevitably we we tend to have these discussions in around. February and March, most financial years, about the underspend and potential handing back and all of those sorts of things. So I do think it would be a great idea for the departments to have a range of capital projects that have business cases approved um, where the cost can be updated to current prices reasonably quickly and they can be procured and, and be taken forward reasonably quickly. But that's probably something that we should do early next year to get ready for a budget spend um, early in, in, or later in 2022. Um, I think in terms of the green economy, there are massive opportunities here um, for Northern Ireland to be a leader. Something in which Northern Ireland has been really successful is renewable electricity generation. Um, and we're, we're first, it's the only indicator in which we lead all of Europe. Um, we're ahead of every other nation. It's a, it's a fantastic result. And a lot of that goes back to policies that were put in place in the noughties and the early, the early teens. So if we, if we get this right, there certainly is the opportunity to, to generate an awful lot um, of activity. We can reduce the amount of imported fuels. So what we do, we import a lot of heavy oils for the transport industry and also for heating. So those are two areas in which we could significantly move towards ground and air source heat pumps, solar energy, and all of those sorts of things as well. So we need to begin to think about how we improve the conversation on generation and storage technologies um, and how we can retrofit them into existing buildings. Perhaps how the planning system could say, you know, for example, every house that is built and every office that is built from 22 onwards is zero carbon. Or do we use the rating system to say, well, in five years' time, we're giving you a very clear signal that unless your building is carbon neutral or carbon compliant, we're going to increase the rates in five years' time, and you've got enough time now to begin to that journey to get to the point um, of which you will pay less rates. But give those clear signals to, to businesses, give them time to, to adjust to the factors that need to be adjusted. 
And the third point is in around infrastructure as well. So if we're going to have a hydrogen-fueled um, public um, transport network, if we're going to have hydrogen-fueled cars in the road, if we're going to have electric vehicles, we need to invest really heavily in terms of the charging and refueling points across Northern Ireland. So there are massive opportunities, again, here for green investment. It will require money to be removed from certain areas and moved towards green energy. Um, but again, you're back to creating jobs. You're back to the ability there to bring young kids in from a vocational background, train them um, train them and develop their skills base, and perhaps even from the inactive and unemployed, if there are young people who have maybe left school or university or college, have never been in work, those are the kids that would benefit most then from uh, the apprenticeship schemes and getting into the green energy technologies early on in their career, because there could easily be a 10, 15 year window of employment here if you have the right skills in terms of green energy. Um, it's something that other economies have embraced um, relatively quickly, and I think Northern Ireland needs to, to move reasonably sharply on that as well in order to not get a first mover advantage, but to be reasonably well up the the packing order. So yeah. that's a good question. And, sure, just that, 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 that shows encouragement, but we have to have the thought and to, 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 to unleash, unleash this, if you like. Doing the, the, the budget every year, as we do here in Northern Ireland, I can't figure out how. You mean it, it makes it, it it's working against itself. Where if we could have three, four, or five years, I mean that that plays into that system and plays into the plan. Do you believe that the first thing we could do is probably look at how we do our our budgets here yearly and try to uh, try to make sure that we we look at three or four year budgets uh, going forward because that is the key to unlocking all of that. Take the mind as well that the United Kingdom and Scotland this year's at uh, COP twenty twenty six. Yeah, I think okay. you know if we could align the the program for government from the next election cycle. So once the elections are complete and the ministers are in place, if we align the program for government and the budgets across the next executive um, timeline, that would be a fantastic improvement in terms of giving security um, and length of of sight to those officials that are working with the budgets right across the piece. The other thing as well, the infrastructure panel that I was on, it looked at, say, planning right out to 2050. So we need to be, we need to plan our infrastructure because once we build it, it will be in place until 2050 and beyond. And we need to engage young people in those types of conversations because, again, they're the people that will probably be paying for and using that infrastructure for the largest proportion of their life. You know, we're going to use it for maybe 20 or 30 more years. We're not necessarily going to use it for 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and that's that's where we need to take that conversation. So absolutely, I, I agree. We need to look very much at the longer term and even uh, cement those capital budgets in if it's a 15-year project. Um, you know, Cast that into your budget um, pretty sharp and then you can move forward from there. But um, it would be a big improvement if we could move to three to five-year budget cycles that align to programme for government priorities. Thank you. Okay. Malisha? Well, too, and uh, thank you for uh, your report. Uh, I read it with great interest. Um, I know that you alluded to in the report, and that as well, too, uh, about um, more or less what one could only but sort of interpret it as the silo structure of the departmental structure uh, and the allocation of the budget and that. 
uh, and that not lending itself quite possibly then to uh, addressing what would have been seen as um, uh, elements of the programme for government, and I think there in particular, again, too, in terms of employment and so on, uh, and is a much more sort of interdepartmental type structure or approach needed uh, uh, in that respect in order to be able to successfully uh, address the elements of a programme for government? I think, uh, Mr. Chairman, yes, in, in, in short, uh, because in order to deliver a, an effective program for government will require cross-departmental working. And um, if we have, and, and when you have cross-departmental working, that will require, this, in order to deliver effective cross-departmental working, that will also require uh, a pooling or sharing of funding uh, between uh, departments. And it is uh, it's normal human behaviour. If you have a, if you have your budget to manage, you manage your budget and allow someone else to manage theirs. Um, so it is a challenge. It's not something that's easy to do. And I wouldn't want members to think that um, there was some easy win out there that just wasn't happening. Um, but it is um, critically important for a lot of the challenges that we now face, whether. Uh, you know, as we come out of this uh, economic recession, uh, we're, we're dealing with um, climate change and, and those major, major uh, challenges that not just we in Northern Ireland, but uh, nationally and globally we face, they will require what, suppose what you could call whole of government responses. And whole of, a whole of government response requires flexibility in the movement of funding and and. Um, and, and money around those uh, different delivery agents and, and departments. So there will need to be a greater a level of flexibility and allocation of funding between departments to help uh, deliver that. Thank you. Uh, in addition, just um, uh, the, the shared uh, prosperity fund not likely to replace all of uh, the uh, benefits that we previously received from the European Union. And how do you think it's likely to impact on the overall development of the economy uh, here in the north of Ireland? That, that's, that's a very difficult question to answer. Maybe, maybe Richard might have a comment, but um, until more detail comes out on, on the SPF and on, on the Shared Prosperity Fund, uh, it's, it's going to, uh, it, it, it's very difficult to provide uh, a, a comment on that. It, it, clearly, there is well, not clearly, but it certainly all the indications are that the amount of funding overall uh, through the SPF will be less than, than was made available to the UK through uh, UK structural funds. So there, that could change um, how the UK spends other money. Um, and, and how they allocate money across the departments that would have historically gone to the European Union um, as, as the net contribution. Because remember, the UK contributed approximately £10 billion a year more to the European Union than it received. Uh, and it's, it's what, the, uh, what the government, what the UK government wants or chooses to do with that additional funding. Are they going to use it to reduce the deficit? Or, uh, or are they going to spend it on, on public services? And if they spend it on public services, then um, money centrally through the, uh, through the Barnett formula will be allocated uh, uh, through the block grant. So it's a, very, it's a complex question. It's a good question. 
Um, but what we could have a situation where there is less money coming in under the FPF badge than came in under the EU structural funds badge, but there may be more money comes through the NI block than would otherwise be the case. Uh, and that's an unknown at the moment. Well, um, making a comment just on that, is that really what you are saying to me is that we have the mercy of the UK government in itself and given the way they've treated the north of Ireland over the whole Brexit issue uh, and the food court, uh, that um, I wouldn't just be that confident that we would be seen uh, uh, as a priority within their programme for government or that our objectives would match theirs in that respect. But that's just the statement yeah. uh, on, on my own part. Uh, just another point I'd like to raise as well too that uh, I know that you've already mentioned there that even though that we receive more per head of population than any other part of the UK and yet and all we totally lag behind every other region in the UK uh, in terms of productivity and in fact even far behind those in the Republic and that given the projections that one has now for uh, national growth and the Republic is probably one of the highest within the European Union, if not the highest, uh, is it likely that that gap is going to widen uh, for the likes of ourselves here in the north of Ireland? Yeah, um, I'll maybe take that one. Um, I suppose even just to, to finish off on your first question, Melissa, um, if you look at say, for example, Invest in I's budget, the EU monies could have been easily 10 to 15%. Now, Invest in I would have to confirm those figures. Um, yeah. So obviously then that could be a, seen as a reduction in, in income and ability to support firms right across Northern Ireland. If the SPF um, doesn't replace that directly, you know, the, the question is how does that assistance get to firms in Northern Ireland? So for me, there's a significant lobbying piece to be done with the UK government to say, right, you have stated that levelling up is one of the clear policy objectives of the government. How does the SPFS, SPF help to level up across the UK? So what do we get in terms of, say, a digital catapult, um, some of the uh, advanced manufacturing centres, and how do they support some of the UK RI or Innovate UK activity that takes place in Northern Ireland that then will plug that gap of the, the EU monies that Invest and I was previously able to disperse. Um, going on to the second point in terms of more per head, we generally have lower productivity and part of that is due to the mix of sectors that we have. We have a, we have a larger proportion within agriculture, for example, which has generally got lower productivity um, and we have a, a lower proportion in professional services, for example, um, which has higher productivity. But even within sectors, you know, agriculture here is less productive than agriculture in the UK. So what we need to look at is digitization and automation and how do we begin to bring some of those technologies to bear right across the, all of the sectors in Northern Ireland. That's something that obviously Invest and I is looking at quite heavily um, and Manufacturing and I are working with them on that as well. Equally in terms of the public sector, you know, we have been spending probably more per capita for um, slightly less good outcomes. And that's what comes through in the competitiveness research is that, you know, we've been spending a lot on public services. Our outcomes are not just as good as we would like them to be in terms of literacy, numeracy, um, all of those sorts of things. Now we are actually a very happy nation where it's quite a good place to live. We have good environmental credentials and all of that. So it's certainly not all bad. But there are areas in which um, sort of education and healthcare, especially that we need to begin to look much closer at our outputs for the spending that we make. 
and work out how we can best spend those pounds. So it's back to the reform point that I think Steve made earlier in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but I'll just come back on that point again about uh, that gap. Uh, is it likely to widen uh, in terms of, we'll say, productivity and uh, opportunities seems to exist even in the Republic of Ireland, our next door neighbour? Uh, in every respect, we lag far behind them. Yeah, and I think the answer to that is uh, unless we begin to change what we do, we shouldn't expect that the results will, will be any different. Um, so that for us, certainly in the policy centre and the discussions that we're having, is absolutely key that we, we step up and we begin to make those policy changes that make a real difference and close those gaps in the future. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Paul. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Just, just a comment by way of the economy piece around the renewable energy uh, aspect. Whilst it is correct to say that we top the, the league for wind generation and renewable generation, we have paid for it. Uh, 70,000 businesses have paid for it. Uh, most of the heavy industrial users are paying the, the most expensive electricity in Europe. And we also top that league table, usually competing with Italy with regards to the, the highest charge for industrial energy. So it's not all good news with regards to that. We also have a system operator that's not functioning properly. We also have a wholesale market that's stumbling. And we have a system uh, that's even in, even in its infancy is starting to creak and crack with regards to amber alerts mm. and, and costs. So it's not all good news on the economic front with regards to renewable technologies. I, I would worry about putting some sort of... Uh, pressure on businesses to adapt property, uh, some sort of financial penalty-wise, uh, whenever they already pay substantial amounts with regards to network costs on their energy bill. Uh, so I think that would be a non-starter. It's one thing paying for an incentive scheme to generate more electricity. It's another thing penalising businesses whenever they've paid through the nose already. Uh, so I would certainly worry about that. Any comments there on that? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. I've made the comments, so I think it's fair for me to answer that one. Um, you know, electricity is something that is not very competitive in Northern Ireland. Large and medium industrial users certainly pay some of the higher um, electricity charges right across Europe. We have to balance that across all of the costs that businesses face in Northern Ireland. So in general, we're quite competitive in terms of rates, in, in terms of rents and in terms of water charges, and we also have relatively low labour costs. So there's a cocktail of reasons why firms trade here, um, and electricity is certainly one of those elements. I think as we look forward, that was one suggestion in terms of how we could incentivise companies by saying, in the future, if you don't begin to change, then potentially you will pay higher rates. There are other potential options there. You could subsidise them at, say, 30% for large companies or 50% for smaller companies to um, take forward renewable energy or and storage um, options. So there are certainly ways in which we can incentivise them to do better. But I also think, as an economist, we should disincentivise some bad behaviour as well, potentially, um, and look at the policy framework around that. So perhaps that's maybe not the, the single policy frame that would be used um, just in terms of the, the long-term uh, aspirations for rate changes. But I think we need to consider both the, the incentive and disincentive side of the coin for how we ensure that the public and the private sector begin to work together to deliver 
better outcomes um, for the environment. But I agree, electricity is one element that certainly um, large industrial users will struggle with. Um, if you look at the decision by the likes of Michelin, um, you know, electricity cost was one of the key challenges that they faced in Northern Ireland. They were supported, I think, to put in a wind turbine. Um, but again, when they were benchmarked against the plants across the rest of the world, they were still uncompetitive given the, the costs that were here and ultimately they moved. So those aren't success stories. Um, and we're acutely aware, aware of the impact that that has when companies leave Northern Ireland. Yeah, and you've, you've hit the nail uh, on, a, on a company that I would know a lot about, living two miles away from it uh, at that uh, time. But, yeah, you're quite right in what you say, but, but most big industrial users and big energy users have adapted through necessity, not through incentive, to try and get their bills down. Um, and some of them have went into the demand side unit side of things to try and reduce that cost and try and... And that, that's even affected the shift work in many ways, um, but it, it, companies are adapting and changing due to necessity, not necessarily because it was, it's the right thing to do or because of, of the environment or, or because of a penalty that they could incur. It's through necessity that they have adapted, put in the wind turbines, put in solar panels. And that in itself then has an impact on the, on the economy because if you take large companies off-grid, we all then pay for it, the people who remain then on the grid, especially then uh, the top side, side of the large industrial users that remain on grid, they then pay the, their bigger share of that bucket because that bucket doesn't seem to reduce. Uh, so there is, ask, there is real balancing issues here with regards to incentivising companies to go greener in re regards to energy. Absolutely, and that's again something DFE I think are working quite hard on in, in the energy strategy, um, which I think is going to be brought forward at the end of this um, this calendar year. So I, I agree with those points. It's it's a it's a balancing act, but like all policies, whether it's within energy or within the labour market, we need to to balance things like say the you know benefits traps, um, incentives to get people into work, and the removal of benefits as people earn more and all that sort of stuff. So. The very same applies within the energy sector, and we need to to be cognizant of how all the different policies interact with each other to create all of those incentives or disincentives that we talked about. Okay, thank you, uh, thank you, Richard. Uh, one question then I have on the RI borrowing now. Again, I think everyone. Uh, uh, Deputy Chair, can I just sort of interject sure. just a, a quick yep. one about the energy issues? And one of the questions that has been, of course, the increased uh, energy costs within Northern Ireland. And one of the issues we have is, is Northern Ireland too small to be part of, to be running its separate regulation process and the rest of it? And we would be much better being part of the rest of sort of our nation's energy structure within CFDs in particular, because there's obviously a very significant question now being asked about uh, market incentive, particularly for things like offshore wind and larger scale renewable projects that can't be done on the scale that we are at the moment. Yeah. Is the university doing any modelling? about sort of uh, the uh, ability of or sort of the size of the Northern Ireland market vis-a-vis -vis the benefits of being part of a much larger market, indeed sort of being part of the sort of the CFT uh, business that's currently going through and the new markets that are now going through the rest of our, our nation. Is there any work being done along those lines? Also, can I add to that? Yes, just With regards yep. to even interconnection, uh, obviously interconnection in a general sense is a good thing. There's always a balance of how much we pay for it. 
uh, and the economic balance of that. But but is there any is the university looking at any sort of further interconnection with GB, but then also Europe? Chair, I, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any work going on within the university, but I can. I'm quite happy to follow that up and get back to the committee with with an answer. Uh, I'm sure if there is any work or any research, uh, whoever's conducting that would be more than happy to um, to engage with your committee. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Paul, okay. right. just on the other issue then about RRI borrowing, I think everyone to a person in this committee had stated, you know, we should be borrowing at this time. Uh, but it also struck me when I, we were all urging the departments to, to seek out uh, projects to, to qualify for this borrowing that I can remember having a conversation with somebody high up in the infrastructure department a number of years ago and he was lamenting the point that a big block of his budget yearly goes on interest on previous projects that had received the public-private part, public partnership funding or borrowing at that time. It struck me then that if we are going to have this collegiate approach as an executive, is it right and fair that a department who may well gain advantage from borrowing should then be left to fund the interest solely, or should that be a more collegiate approach? Yeah, well, I suppose that's it's correct that um, PFI and PPP payments will silt up your capital budget within a department. Um, so that certainly is the, the practical outworking of it. I suppose for me, you would need to consider whether or not that project is, you know, is it a Northern Ireland good or is it a specific infrastructure project? Is it an education project? Um, and should the executive have a, a central interest payment element? So, you know, again, it's, that one's wide open for debate in terms of the pros and cons. Um, it's hard to think perhaps, uh, say, an airport project that would benefit all of Northern Ireland could potentially be something that you would have a, an NI executive interest payment on. Um, but if it's purely a road or it's purely a school or purely a hospital, then there, there's probably a better argument for that at the, the departmental level. Surely, surely if we build a new corridor... And that in itself attracts new business, gets a commuter to a certain destination in quicker time. And all the benefits that we know with regards to infrastructure, whether it be rail or road or hospitals or schools, uh, surely that has a benefit for all. And, and is it not, even in its purest sense, an easier thing to do that if you get to February of any year and you have this money left at the centre... Surely it would be better, if nothing else, to pay off interest, if that's possible, uh, rather than having a department doing it singularly. You, you understand what I'm getting at? It, it, does yeah, it add yeah. more flexibility? Uh, and, you know, so imagine, I, again, I could be, this could be pie in the sky and I just don't know, and you're going to inform me, I'm sure, if, if, I'm, if I am wrong. But you imagine if we have left with 200 million uh, at the tail end of a budget financial year, well, even if we put that in, push that into interest payments before we would hand that back to the Treasury, it's still going to be a massive benefit to the people of Northern Ireland. It's going to be value for money, and it's going to be money well spent in that regard because it's reducing interest. Can that be done? Yeah. I 
I think it's a well-made point, but for me, it's something that I certainly need to check out with the Department of Finance officials as to whether or not that's a, an option that's allowed by the by the rules that Treasury and DOF operate under. So I, I get the idea, I understand it in terms of paying off the capital, um, but it's, it's, I suppose, the art of the possible in that context. Okay. I think yeah, it's an interesting point that, that the member raises. And for me, you're, you're, you're comparing the way in which a national government would operate its finances compared to uh, a regional devolved administration. So a national government will borrow money through gilts and then allocate that funding, and then the treasury within that national government will pay off the interest uh, separately. So it isn't uh, you know, the Department uh, of Infrastructure paying the interest on the debt that was used to finance the road building project. It's the Treasury itself that pays that. Um, in, as Richard says, in a devolved administration, the, the rules around finance uh, are, are, are different and the rules around borrowing are, are different. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good and interesting idea um, that, 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 that merits further investigation, but I think officials within the Department of Finance would be, um, would, would be best placed to answer that. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, cheers. Matthew, short one, please. Uh, I will. Um, um, would you say that the, um, Northern Ireland's um, position at the minute, notwithstanding um, some of the issues around goods moving from getting used to goods moving from uh, east to west that, that, that there's a, there are potential um, competitive advantages for our economy uh, relative to both GB uh, the GB economy and also even the south uh, of Ireland in terms of we are in the unique position of having goods moving unfettered goods access into both Great Britain and the EU single market Do you, would, would you say that represents a potential I'm not asking anyone to get involved in political controversy, but from an economic perspective, that represents a, a competitive advantage. Good try. We're an equal opportunity. We're an equal opportunity committee here. But let him, uh, yeah. Sorry, thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's, there's potential, is, is the word, but it's, it's all, um, the, we're currently in the unknown, uh, operating in the unknown at the minute, in that. Uh, there is an argument that we're both in the UK union economically and whatever free trade agreements that the UK are able to negotiate. So we have access to the UK single market, if you like, and then we also have access to the European single market. For that to work effectively, uh, again, without sort of rehearsing previous comments, um, trade east-west and west-east has to be as, as frictionless um, as, as possible. Um, but I have heard a number of, of businesses who have indicated there may be potential benefits um, for, uh, from being located in Northern Ireland compared to GB and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and, and it's about how we, how we take advantage of those. That at the minute is unknown. I haven't done any work around that. Um, but there's th th those are the, the sorts of opportunities that we need to that we need to start to think about. But there are yeah. Um, sorry, I do. You... Sorry, uh, I do think you know there's certainly opportunities. Um, if you look back at a lot of the Brexit research, it could shave five six percent off the UK and the NI economy. So there's certainly you know overall um, probably a perspective that it's it's negative, given um, the potential relationships. If you look at 
you know, there are always going to be winners and losers in any economic policy conversation. Um, and if you look at FDI, there are companies that were considering investing in GB that have now thought, well, Northern Ireland looks like a much better option because you have a, a foot in, in both markets effectively. So those companies that have been um, looking at other areas of GB have actually begun to shift their sites geographically. The other element is perhaps um, firms that are in the south potentially setting up a base in Northern Ireland to export to, to GB. And then the third thing is in terms of regulation. So we, the UK is pretty good at regulation. It's well respected globally, um, and that's very good for finance, for pharmaceuticals, and um, for legal services and all of those sorts of things that we, we export around the world. Firms now can benefit from being part of both regimes. And effectively, if a firm can pick the most stringent of the two regulatory regimes, then it can trade in both markets. So that, in effect, is a, a comparative advantage that, that they won't have um, in other potential jurisdictions as well. So, and the last thing I'll say is in around frictions. Um, from a policy perspective, we could reduce some of the frictions. For example, in the, the vehicle management system, if you drive a lorry off a ship, you could be stopped for three different reasons, um, HMRC, the council or DERA can all perform a check. And if we had a single check that was able to actually satisfy all of those requirements, we could we could physically reduce the, the frictions that are in place in Northern Ireland by, by one or two different policy tweaks and getting those uh, organisations to work more closely together. Okay, okay. okay, thanks very much indeed. I'll not make the obvious comment that if we didn't have any f checks at all, it would be completely frictionless, but I'll not make that obvious comment. I'll make the obvious point that if we didn't have breaks, we wouldn't have checks at all. Oh, we we are where we are. We behave. Depend where we have to start the story at the right place. And yeah, share, behave. Anyway. Right. Uh, just uh, two uh, sort of final things before I go. And sorry for this being an extended session, but I think we, were, we can safely say that that was uh, very valuable. Uh, Gareth, the Independent Fiscal Council, we've been told uh, just at the beginning of this meeting, and we've had some correspondence that said it's going to be set up by this uh, beginning of this, uh, uh, by the end of this financial year. Uh, obviously, as somebody who would probably be uh, a key member of that, if there was going to be a truly independent fiscal council, have you had the telephone call from the Minister yet? Uh, it, it came as news to me, uh, Mr. Chairman, <laughs> when you said that it was going to be in place uh, by the end of this fiscal year. Yeah, and it's probably safe to say that Richard Ramsey feels the same way. Yeah, <laughs> okay. You check your inbox. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, Team Gareth, uh, sir Richard, thank you very much indeed. Um, from there is a potential action from this. Uh, all your question reference RRI. Could you ship a couple of words to that as well, and then we'll write to the, the Department of Finance reference that RRI issue, just to get some sort of detail on that as well, if you could deal with the, deal with yeah, the clerk to do that as well. Simply to know whether uh, the, the burden should be placed on the department that's going to uh, uh, advan be advantaged from the, or, or be, be responsible for the spend, is probably the best way. So, so road, so uh, infrastructure, Department of Infrastructure is responsible for building out our road network. So they have the responsibility to spend that money and they will bid and allocate, uh, get allocated that money. But if it's coming from a borrowing source, then, then there's a burden of cost with regards to interest. But surely that road network is for the benefit of all. So should that not be an executive spend or cost burden as opposed to a departmental cost burden? So it's a, a case of why can we not centralise that burden on interest payment? 
no matter who the department was who had the responsibility of, of building new schools, building new hospitals, and rolling out a, net, a road network or a rail network. So it's just, I think it's a, a new way, a fresh way of looking at government here. Might be the rules won't allow it, as the gentleman have, has alluded to, but I think it's something we should explore because it will lead to better and more flexibility, especially coming up to end of financial years. It's also interesting because if you take the programme for government to its logical conclusion, yes. it's a programme for government Absolutely. of all the departments. Yeah. Therefore, because the various elements of the programme for government are cross-cutting by their, suppose, by their nature, yeah. that indeed is the case. The benefits and also the costs should be able to share it across the, across the process. It also alludes to the broken nature of our executive, unfortunately, because if the finance minister is sitting waiting for departmental uh, ministers to bid for borrowing in our RI, well, there's a fundamental weakness there. There's a, there's a patchwork... Uh, so you could have a minister who would be quite proactive, or you could have a minister that's not proactive at all around uh, adventure spend or or, uh, or or borrowing. You could have a minister who's against borrowing, uh, or you could have a minister who's all pro-borrowing. Uh, so surely there should be a collegiate approach, an executive approach, as to what we need borrowing for, how do we spend it, and then how do we pay it back? Okay. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, Moving on, and uh, the next session is much of the same thing. It's from Pivotal. It's the 2021 draft budget, and the clerk's cover notice on page 119. Uh, the budgeted evidence uh, paper is at page 12. Federation of Small Business paper is page 129. And NICFA response in the draft budget is page 134. Anne, are you there? I'm here, yes. Welcome. Good to see you again. And apologies for sort of the delay in bringing you up. But well, we had quite a long evidence session that we were really getting stuck into and the rest of it. And so we're really looking forward to uh, sort of listening to your approach and the rest of it. And as uh, I think, are you Northern Ireland's only independent think tank? And if you are, we're looking forward to he hearing what you say. And please uh, come uh, with your opening statement. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. And um, thank you to the committee for the invitation to provide evidence today. Um, I'm going to provide some comments on this year's budget process and the draft allocations and then offer some ideas about how the budget process could improve in future years to allow a more strategic and planned approach that's more focused on addressing Northern Ireland's longer term challenges. So just to introduce Pivotal and me, as this is the first time that um, Pivotal has appeared at this committee. So Pivotal is a new independent public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. Uh, we were launched in September 2019, so just under 18 months ago. And Pivotal's aim is to promote the greater use of evidence in policy making and enable more people to get involved in influencing the policy issues that matter to them. Um, Pivotal is independent of governments, political and political parties, and like independent think tanks elsewhere. Pivotal aims to provide research and analysis which helps inform public policy discussions and encourages good decision-making. And I hope that you can see the value of our work in the set reports we've published so far and in our other engagements on public policy issues. So we're a small organization. I'm the director and we have a small research team. We'd like to grow the organization because we believe there's a need for this independent, evidence-based policy voices outside of government. 
but that depends on securing funding to enable that growth and that's something we're actively seeking to do. So just about me personally, I've been the director of Pivotal since its launch in September 2019. Uh, previously, I was a civil servant in London, including 10 years in the Treasury and four years in the Cabinet Office. So I have first-hand experience of three spending reviews in the Treasury, albeit some years ago now. And most recently, before joining Pivotal, I was the head of the Electoral Commission in Northern Ireland. So my comments on the draft budget are in two halves. Um, first of all, talking about the allocations this year, um, sorry, the allocations for next year. And secondly, some comments about how the process needs to improve for the future. So the Treasury didn't confirm the overall funding envelope until the end of November, making this year's budget timetable much more compressed. So this is a very rushed process and the results, unfortunately, will be allocations that are less refined by scrutiny and challenge. Our related point is that there's a lack of much detail in the budget statement of the document. In terms of actual figures, we get total allocations to departments provided, but nothing more detailed than that about how the money will be used. So there's growth rates for resource Dell given, which vary hugely from 0.7% to 24.3%, but without explanation of the reasons for the differences. Apart from some specific headline announcements, there's no information about how departments' allocations will be spent. We're not told anything about what's new, what funding might be spent differently, or what spending might stop. So that lack of detail may be attributable to the lack of time to prepare the documentation, but unfortunately, the result is that those of us looking to scrutinise the draft budget have very limited information on which to work. So given that, looking at the information provided, I'd offer the following comments on the allocations for next year. So obviously this is an extremely tough settlement for Resource Dale. Flat cash doesn't offer much room for manoeuvre, particularly in challenging times. Um, the finance packages that are yet to be confirmed by the Secretary of State, plus whatever end year carry forward is agreed by the Treasury, may increase the funding available a little. However, it's a tight settlement, even with these additions. It's particularly difficult given the wider economic forecasts of the small recovery after the severe contraction in GDP in 2020, and forecasts of rising unemployment and the risks of scarring effects in the labour market. Conventional economic theory would suggest that government spending should rise in response to downturns in the economy to make up for falling consumption, investment and exports. But this very limited resource Dell block grant allocation does not seem to allow for that. The share of total debt taken by health is 50%, as already has been mentioned this afternoon. Um, health spending predicted to grow by 6.5% annually, so we're going to see the proportion of overall spending taken by health continuing to rise and continuing to squeeze the funding available for other departments in the future. As has been said, the need for reform in health and social care is long-standing, but there's been little progress. While acknowledging the extremely challenging circumstances over the past year in health, the case for fundamental reform remains and must be prioritised if the health and social care system and indeed the executive's budget overall are to be sustainable. So that has to be an urgent priority for the executive as a whole. While the draft budget lacks the detail needed to allow proper scrutiny, the below average percentage increase for education stands out. Although the teachers pay dispute settled last year, 
there are well-known serious pressures on school budgets. Added to this, research shows the impacts of school closures on children and young people's learning and well-being as significant. Without additional support for children and young people over the coming year when they return to school, these negative effects would be long-lasting. So this budget should be prioritising investment in, in this to avoid longer-term consequences for children and young people themselves and the economy as a whole. So just looking at the capital budget, it sees, it sees a small increase in 21-22. The draft budget document sets out some of the flagship projects that will be funded. There remains, though, an outstanding question about the new decade, new approach commitment to turbocharging infrastructure. Um, we all know that Northern Ireland's held back by years of underinvestment in key infrastructure, and the executive should agree joint priorities for investment in essential infrastructure projects to stimulate and support growth. So my final point about the draft budget allocations for next year, again, new decade, new approach included a very ambitious set of actions across the full range of public services, particularly to investment at the core. Um, my question would be, what is the status of these commitments now? Are they included within this draft budget? The, the lack of detail makes it hard to answer that question. Um, it's important the executive provides clarity to the public about the status of the new decade near approach measures and when the public might expect them to be delivered, if at all. So in the second half of my comments, I'll offer some reflections on this year's budget process and suggest ways it could be improved. So I'll be making the case for a longer term strategic approach to budget setting, which prioritises Northern Ireland's long-standing economic and social challenges and recognises the likely future fiscal environment. So as has already been said, there needs to be a clear connection between the budget process and programme for government. The executive priorities are set out in the programme for government, um, which is now extremely overdue. Um, but meanwhile, we've got funding allocated in the budget without any link between these two processes. Having a set of priorities in a programme for government that isn't reflected in budget allocations just doesn't make sense. So making a better linkage between the budget and the programme for government should be a focus for next year's process. As has been mentioned already, there's a real need for multi-year budgets. This isn't possible this year since the Treasury only gave a one-year allocation. But this one-year budget in Northern Ireland comes after several other one-year budgets. The last multi-year budget was set in 2011. Um, so multi-year budgets are vital to enable longer-term planning, particularly investment in capital programmes and public service reform. One-year budgets tend to encourage rolling forward of existing allocations, whereas multi-year budgets should allow a more strategic, strategic approach. Um, setting multi-year budgets should be a priority for the executive from next year onwards. Um, this budget, I think, demonstrates the need for more strategic, strategic decision-making, which links to the case for multi-year budgets. The circumstances this year are clearly difficult, but nevertheless, there's no obvious strategy overall in this budget. There are some additions for particular areas of need, but largely it's a roll forward of previous allocations. There's no evidence provided of reprioritization of last year's funding allocations given the changed circumstances now, for example. So given the immediate impacts of COVID, a clearer strategy underpinning the budget allocations would have been welcome. Um, in the circumstances, a budget with a clear strategy about recovery would have been appropriate. 
where there's a focus on prioritizing those groups who research shows have been most affected by the pandemic. Evidence would point to, for example, funding new initiatives to support children who struggle because of missed school, young people who have far more limited economic opportunities now, and lower skilled and lower paid workers whose jobs are most likely to, be, to, to have been affected. Perhaps this strategy is in the detail of the allocations to departments that hasn't been published, or perhaps some of the currently unallocated funding for the COVID-19 response will find its way to these priority areas in the final budget allocations. Um, Pivotal has also repeatedly argued for a greater focus from the executive on Northern Ireland's long-term economic and social challenges like low skills, poor competitiveness, persistent poverty, and health and social care reform. While these structural challenges are mentioned in the opening section of the budget document, it isn't clear how these budget allocations will address these long-term challenges. So there's a need to focus in future years on these longer-term issues with multi-year budgets to sit alongside. As mentioned before, the clear emphasis on transformation of public services in New Decade Near Approach was welcome, but there isn't much, if any, evidence of public service reform in this draft budget. As noted already, this budget is largely to go forward in the previous year's allocations rather than taking any longer-term view apart about how spending and services need to develop and change. There's 49 million allocated for NDNA transformation, but details aren't provided about how this will be used. Reform of public services in Northern Ireland is long overdue and must be prioritised by the executive. Without it, service, services will become unsustainable, as noted in the Bingoa report on health and social care. The risk, though, is that the challenging context of COVID plus the tightness of this year, oh, next year's funding allocation will mean that more fundamental reform is once again pushed back for another year. Just in final comments, to the fiscal outlook for the coming years, it does not look likely that Northern Ireland is going to receive anything other than very tight allocations from the UK government in the coming years, given all the public spending and borrowing in 2021 to counter COVID and its impacts. In its planning, the executive needs to be realistic about these future limited block grant allocations. The executive needs to ask itself more fundamental questions about how it can get the very best from existing funding, including through investment in reform of public services. Such efforts to get more from existing funding may be the only way to enable new spending on emerging priorities. As well as that, the executive should give serious consideration to other sources of finance than funding through the block grant. There has in the past been a reluctance to contemplate these options. And um, I note that the finance manager, finance minister ruled out increasing the regional rate for 21-22. But in the anticipated tight fiscal environment, they may offer the only route to bring forward funding for new priorities. So finally, as noted at the start, there's limited detail and um, time for scrutiny and challenge of this draft budget. So more time and better information are definitely needed for next year and beyond. As well as that, the executive should prioritize the establishment of the independent fiscal council that has already been discussed as promised in the fresh start agreement in 2015 and in new decade near approach in 2020. An independent fiscal council would provide important assessments of the executive's revenue and spending plans, including looking at sustainability in the medium and long term. 
So that concludes my opening comments, Chair. I'm happy to expand on any of these points to, in answer to questions from the committee. Thanks very much indeed, Anne. Matthew. Oh. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Anne. Um, uh, worth saying, um, certainly from my party's perspective, that Pivotal has been a um, really welcome and constructive addition to the um, policy-making landscape in uh, this part of the world, and long may it thrive. Um, uh, a lot of what you said about the lack of strategy in um, uh, this document and the lack of long-term uh, budgeting resonates. It's a little bit like, um, I think the first report you put out in 2019, you talked about next year needing to be the year where we finally did long-term strategy, and then next year, we sometimes looking at the, the executive reminded of the Johnny Logan song, What's Another Year, when it comes to... Um, uh, when it comes to setting long-term goals, no, I've got my you're age. I didn't think you were that old, Matthew. No, I'm not that old. I've just got a big frame of reference, Chair. I'm just. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a classicist when it comes to the Eurovision, basically. Anyway, um, sad, sad. Yes, I know. I'm not really. Uh, on um, on some of the long-term multi-year budgeting, um, one of the things we've been talking about a lot in this committee is the. Uh, it's not just about long-term budgeting. Um, it's also about. Um, uh, proper strategic um, uh, allocation of funding and also what you've just mentioned, Anne, on um, new uh, revenue-raising powers. Have you done any work on the Fiscal Council proposals that we are now hearing today are closer to being delivered on? Um, no, we haven't done any work on that beyond, um, in principle, clearly welcoming the, um, the commitment in um, a fresh start agreement and then new deck in your approach to the fiscal council because of the external independent scrutiny it would provide of you know annual budgets but also of the sustainability of the budgets going forward so we haven't looked in any detail about how it would work in practice do you think i mean this is uh, i'm sort of i guess asking you to speculate a bit but do you think one of the things we've talked about and others have talked about is, is either in addition to or as part of the Fiscal Council, there is a kind of one-off Fiscal Commission which looks at the potential for either new bars or new options for revenue raising. Um, I'm interested in, in your views on that specifically, but also whether you think it would be useful that the either the Fiscal Commission, if there is one, uh, or the Standing Fiscal Council have economic forecasting powers and the ability to properly look at um, you know, long-term structural things that we need to invest in, whether that's, um, you know, the shape of our health service or, you know, because one of the things that has come out, obviously, over the past year has been the um, deeply improvised nature of uh, allocations. So those, those two points, one on whether there should be a one-off fiscal commission to look at this in addition to or as part of the fiscal council, and then and whether economic policy, sorry, economic um, forecasting modelling should be part of the toolbox as opposed to just you know a kind of slightly more in the way that the OBR obviously does as well as um, giving a view on uh, a fiscal view it also gives a um, it has an economic um, uh, analysis contained within that yeah so I think on the you know on a one-off fish commission to look at the wider range of options in terms of revenue raising I think that would be really welcome. I know over the years there have been various reports about the issue of, of, of um, raising more revenue locally. 
I think given the likely uh, fiscal environment we're looking at, as I mentioned, um, given the, the amount of borrowing uh, by the UK government in the past year, we're going to be looking at very limited allocations. So if the executive wants to have any flexibility um, and any uh, funding available for new emerging priorities, I think thinking about raising more revenue locally would is, is certainly something it should consider properly and it may consider that fully and, and reject it as an option but I think it should be properly looked at rather than just, just dismissed. So I would welcome that um, a one-off fiscal commission. I think on the, um, the powers of a fiscal council, um, yes it would have this role in scrutinising the budget and um, uh, providing an assessment about the sustainability of the budget in the, the medium and longer term as well. Um, would it do economic forecasting? Uh, I mean, there are already organisations who do forecasting in Northern Ireland, like, like the, the uh, colleagues we've just heard, you, you just heard from, from the um, uh, UU Economic Policy Centre. So you'd have to look at whether an additional body was needed on, 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 uh, as, as well as that. Um, but yes, I suppose um, doing doing the, the economic forecasting as well as for, forecasting the public finances would be would be potentially useful. But obviously, that gives it a much bigger remit and becomes a much more a much bigger scale organisation. Yeah, and, and on the PFG, we've heard in the last I think we've heard in the last few days from the first minister. Am I wrong that they're they're intending to? Move forward with the PFG. Well, they've uh, already the consultation is already out. It's been out now yeah. for two weeks. And will has Pivotal uh, started to work on a response? Will you be um, uh, factoring? In, will you be contributing to that consultation? We will. Yes. Um, so haven't uh, started looking at it yet, but um, we've. Uh, long been calling. Well, to say we've long been calling, we've only been around for 17 months. But um, feels we've like a long time. Saying throughout that time that the the, the lack of a program for government um, at, at the minute and indeed over the last 12 months is a real shortcoming. You know, the, the, the executive doesn't have a joint set of priorities. Um, and how can it be setting a budget when it doesn't have a joint set of priorities? So we, we certainly will be scrutinising the programme for government. I, I had a quick look at it, and I was looking to see for any if there were any links to the budget, which there weren't, as far as I could see. So that's um, one first observation about the need for a closer link between the two processes. Uh, I've got one final brief question. Chair, you as a, um, someone who's looked at uh, po uh, po policy um, across the water frontier over the last... Um, well, 18 months or whatever, um, and a former Treasury official, if you're looking at 200-odd million of unallocated money in the next six to seven weeks, if you, were, um, if you had your um, uh, choice, how would Pivotal allocate that? I'm sort of slightly putting you on the spot, but can you think of any ways and what would be your recommendation for allocating that money in the next six to seven weeks urgently to... Um, in a way that is um, uh, value-adding for um, uh, the society? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's certainly a tall order. You know, practically uh, making um, allocations that are robust and value for money and that sort of timescale is very, very tight. If I had a longer timescale, I'd be looking at um, what I said about those um, 
groups of the population who have been most affected by COVID. I'd be looking particularly at children and young people and supporting their return to school. I think the evidence emerging shows the huge impacts on children's well-being, not, ju not just their learning loss, but on their well-being as well, and perhaps more fundamentally through the, the um, long periods of absence from school. And I've been looking at whether we can give increased support to schools to provide additional help to, those, to children and young people to get back to where they need to be when they return to school. Okay, thank you very much, Sydney. Pat? Pat? Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Anne, um, for, for your presentation. And my questions are very simple. I'm going to come to them at the end. But we here in Northern Ireland define ourselves either by design or by fault, suppose, in a particularly unique trading position or supply chain position after Brexit with the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We have an emerging trade bridge between the UK and the rest of Europe, something our Scottish cousins would love to have. In fact, quite envious of it. Products can enter Northern Ireland from the EU, and goods manufactured can be explored and exported freely to the UK, notwithstanding the current goods supply transport issues with Northern Ireland and GB. But the simple questions that come from all of that is why should international firms do business with us? We need to look at this and strip away all of that, uh, that block that why should they locate Northern Ireland? Uh, what do we have to offer that makes us stand above the competitors? Why do we fit into this new emerging trade route and supply chains? Or why should local firms seek to grow their home based business? And last but not least, I know it's making our young people want and feeling to belong here and, and giving pride back into where we live in Northern Ireland. So we need to look at the opportunities. I hear everything that you said and they're big, but I've tried to bring it down to smaller, you know. Mm -hmm. And proud of where we are and go back to that entrepreneurship which Northern Ireland was famous for a hundred years ago. That, 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 that's the questions to you and stripping away all of the big the big reform tickets and then investment. Yeah, um, so I would say the real focus should be on investing in skills. Um, we have a, a low skill, low wage economy here. And so we, we need to be in, investing in giving um, young people particularly, but, but, but people right across the, the, the age distribution, the skills they need to be um, competing for uh, better jobs and getting, and getting better pay. Um, so I'd be, I'd be focusing on that and I'd be looking particularly at young people's opportunities, which have in many cases vanished because of the, the impacts of COVID on the economy. So building up skills um, and yet using the, the opportunity that our, our trading position post-Brexit provides, making the best of that, um, noting the conversation earlier about the, about the frictions. Um, but yes, se se selling Northern Ireland as a place to locate, um, but to, 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 to make that case to international firms, we've got to be showing that we've got the skills, that we've got the infrastructure to, su to support their business um, and all of those things are in need of you know a, 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 a longer term focus to address some of the weaknesses that there are in our economy I you know I would agree there are lots of strengths here there are lots of strengths lots of things we can build on but there are also really quite serious long-standing 
weaknesses in terms of low skills, in terms of educational inequality, um, underinvestment in infrastructure, low levels of entrepreneurship. So we need to work on all those things. And both probably flowing from that is Northern Ireland. It can be a fair and a profitable place for all of us if we want to work together for the editor in the private, the public and, and social enterprise sectors, trade unions. But it's getting it's it's instilling with all of the all of all of the what we've talked about here today, it's getting faith in who we are and where we are in Northern Ireland and starting to build that up again, and we can do this, and, we, and it is deliverable. But we need to keep on, rather sometimes knocking ourselves all back. We need to look at what we have and be thankful of where we are and our place in the trading world, trying to build it up as best as possible we can. There's no doubt there are things that hold us back. Um, mm -hmm. You've mentioned a lot of them there today, but there is great hope, and we need to keep using that and, and repeating that over and over again. Anne. Yep, and and one thing Pivotal has said in in our report so far is there's a there's a real need for a an ambitious long term economic strategy that addresses some of the weaknesses but really sets uh, Northern Ireland's sights high on what 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 we can achieve in the future. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And just before we let you go, um, would you be content for the committee to? Uh, allow the content of your report to be published? That is absolutely fine, yes. Oh, right, sorry. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry, the clerk, the clerk has just uh, rebriefed me. Uh, it happens fairly regularly, trust me. <laughs> to do the rest of it. Okay, Paul, just a very short one, please. Um, thank you very much for your time and your presentation. It's been very, very useful having this and interesting reading, so thank you. Um, I, I hear what you say with regards to, I, I know that health takes up 50% of our budget, but we do have, in my eyes, three big beasts of departments, and that would be health, of course, but also education and justice. And a lot of those, the reasons why they are so big is to do with um, uh, costs and burdens that just cannot be moved. Uh, could be wages, could be big blocks like the PSNI and, and the educational sector and the employment issues that comes out of that. So, so you can understand how they are immovable. Uh, but I do take your point because out of those three departments, health and justice have received at the, in, the, in the draft budget 5% uh, increases or above 5%, whereas, as you've alluded to, education seems to get 1.8 of a lift so far in the draft budget. Uh, I suppose my question out of that, having acknowledged what, what you've also outlined, is it, it could well be down to capacity with regards to that department how they spend that money. So I suppose, has Pivotal any ideas of, and you've alluded to this in your presentation already, about supporting young people in their education? Given the barriers presently uh, imposed with regards to remote learning and home learning, and not being able to utilise the, the built form to the way it should be. Has Pivotal any, any ideas of how we could actually support those pupils? Crystal ball gazing, I know, with regards to the year ahead, uh, and what measures and restrictions could well be still in place. But is there any ideas, anything out there that actually we should be doing uh, or putting into place now, maybe even from around the world, best teaching methods and learning? Uh, even in the COVID restrictions 
air around the world that would actually we should be applying? Yeah, so um, I think this is a really important point. As I said in my um, comments at the start, I'm surprised that there isn't a greater focus on the COVID recovery of children and young people, given that the risks that there are to uh, their learning and their progress and their, their well-being. And um, what is needed, in my view, with, with, and I am not an educationist, and there'd be plenty of people who could answer that question in more detail about specifically what programmes work. Um, but I would have thought what we need is extra resources for schools to enable children to get one-to-one -one support or small group support, which is in addition to the class teaching. So schools will return, uh, budgets will be largely as they were, class teachers will be in place, but there'll be children within the class who are really struggling because of the period when schools were closed. And so I would say, in principle, what's needed is additional resources to enable schools to have some flexibility, some additional um, skilled staff who can work with children one-to-one -one or in small groups. You know, the actual programs that that, that that might mean you'd be much better to go to one of the many uh, very uh, knowledgeable educationists in, in Northern Ireland who, who could advise about what specifically that, that could be, but I think it's clear from emerging evidence, um, both locally and across the UK and across the world, that the impacts of school closures on, on children are much more severe than we, we ever anticipated. Yeah. On another point, uh, and you raised this about, the, I think what you raised it is about the programme for government piece. Uh, it strikes me that even before Stormont fell over the three years, I was Justice Chairperson, and I was asking the financial people in that department, how does their budget bids uh, incorporate the programme for government, and how do those two documents align with each other? And it was quite clear that they didn't then. Mm -hmm. We now have a, a, the same programme for government, which is ageing. We now have a new, draft a new draft budget for next year. And then we do now have this consultation for a new draft programme for government. Uh, so it's most definitely the case that the wheels have not yet aligned, when really mm -hmm. it, we need to have them aligned, because we really need a draft programme for government, and then we need to know how we finance it, and then we need yeah. to have a pro we need to have a draft budget, which is populated with ideas out of the programme for government. So these two bodies of work cannot go separate ways, cannot run separately, and cannot have separate lives. They must be married up, but yet we're not seeing that at all. How big an issue is that for government going forward? I would say that huge issue. As you said, it doesn't make sense for um, the the government's the executive's priorities to be set out in one document, completely unconnected to the funding allocations. Um, so those two processes, if you're going to do government properly, those two processes need to be aligned. Um, that is that is not easy. You know, it's easy for me to say those processes need to be aligned. Um, first of all, there's not the, the tradition of, of doing that here. So that's the, uh, that would be a significant change in how the executive does um, budgets. Um, but secondly, 
it's also even even where you've got um the, the process is working together it's not easy to do it because you're still um you know uh, always having the disputes about which funding is contributing to which output and so and so on so i wouldn't be uh, naive and say this is a straightforward thing to do but it's certainly something that needs to be a really good attempt at doing because having you know basically the budget setting setting what departments can spend on unconnected to what's in the program for government doesn't make any sense do, do you think the program for government is the actual piece the actual piece of work, the programme itself, that will net the parliaments together? Uh, or is there something else out there that will force departments to work together better? If the system's working well, the programme for government should be the thing that sets out the executive's work programme and encourages the joint working across departments that everybody wants to see. You know, towards the, the joint outcomes. So it should be the tool to enable that to happen. Um, the risk is that it becomes just a an exercise to produce a pro programme for government that nobody really pays that much attention to and it doesn't actually change departments' um, decisions and behaviours. So what a programme for government that, that works well can be really effective, but the problem is, in, the risk is in practice, it can be a bit nominal in, in just being a, um, a published document, but it doesn't actually change what happens in practice. Yeah, so, so again, I, I, I point to page 44 of the draft booklet, the Department of Justice piece. They, they have been very good in highlighting five uh, areas of, of commitments uh, five priorities from the programme for government, uh, but again, they're only paragraphs on a page, really. Uh, those five commitments and priorities will be shared with other departments, but there's still a job of work to join the two together. Because what you want to see out of those five priorities is actually a budget line, or at least mm -hmm. a value, a monetary value of how much that will cost or the burden that will place on that department to deliver that programme for government piece. And then I think what you have to do is, well, if, 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 this, if this priority is shared between two or more departments, we'll take up 60% of that cost burden, some other department will take up 30% of the cost burden and 10% will go somewhere else. Is that the detail that we need to actually get to, to force the working together and the conjoining of departments for a programme for government? I would have thought the way you'd have a programme for government set for a period of years, so a multi-year programme for government to start with, setting the big objectives that the executive has, and then you, the budget after that says, right, how does that funding, how do the funding allocations deliver that programme for government? And so Yes, it would in, in some detail have to say you know, to achieve this outcome, here are the different things that um, that that this department's going to spend on and here's what it's going to do differently, here's what it's going to here's where it's going to work jointly with another department. Um, so yes, you'd be looking at you know, real detail there to show how the spending actually reflects the overall priorities. Yeah. On our question, you alluded in your document about the new decade, new approach commitments, and in, in this document they are mighty, and not to go political on you, 
but has your organisation completed any work looking at the commitments, putting a, a, a value on them or a, a cost, uh, and then seeing in your eyes what commitments should actually be given priority and, and ranked in any order? Has, has Pivotal done any of that work? So um, what we have done on New Decade Year Approach is just at the start of January, we published a report uh, which looked at what has actually been delivered from New Decade Year Approach. So it highlighted some things that have that happened over the, the 12 months since the executive returned due. So things like settling the teachers and nurses pay disputes, um, uh, appointing a mental health champion and getting a mental health strategy in draft out, a draft of climate change legislation, um, various other commitments like um, independent reviews in education. So some really important aspects of New Decade Year Approach have happened. What we did in this, this report that we published at the start of January was to say, here's the things that have happened, but actually here are the things that haven't happened yet that are still outstanding. So we, we, we named those. What we haven't done is we haven't costed them. Um, that's just to do with limits on our capacity as a small organization. I know that um, if you're interested, the um, Northern Ireland Affairs Committee in July 2020, published a report following evidence from Pivotal and, and various other organisations about the, the likely costs of the new decade, new approach commitments. So that might be somewhere you could go to, to, to look for an assessment of, of, of total costs. I mean, my my overall, I suppose, question about new decade, new approach is it's it's really welcome in its ambition about investment and reform and change, and it covers a huge amount of ground. But having looked at the, the budget for next year, it leaves me wondering what is the status of those commitments? Are they commitments? Are they just it, it, prior? It are is, things that are going to happen? And I think there's no clarity about yeah. that at all. It is, it is, it is clear, to, it is true to say that in some cases, this draft budget may actually go backwards on commitments on New Decade, New Approach. Uh, for instance, uh, police numbers. Um, right. It would be worth getting. Uh, sorry, it's remiss of me that I didn't pick that pivotal report up at the beginning of January. Would it be something that you could send to the committee that we could yes. pick up and have a read? Yeah. And then maybe we could also look at the Northern Ireland Select Committee's work too on this. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank okay. you, Anne. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks very much indeed, Anne. And thank you very much indeed for your time. And sorry for keeping you late, but thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And best of luck. Best of, best of luck with your endeavours. Okay. Thank you. thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, Tim, if we move on to the next item on the agenda, item number eight, and um, we've got quite a bit of this to go through. Uh, item number eight, Board leg Legislation. Uh, Clark's briefing paper at page 142, which, sub which summarises the subordinate legislation. First up is the SL1 Pensions Increase Review Order Northern Ireland 2021. Four members of the Department proposes to make a statutory rule under the Social Security Pensions Northern Ireland Order in 1975. Proposed rules at page 146 will increase public service pensions by 0.5% in line with the Consumer Price Index from April 2021. HM Treasury takes a similar order to provide for equivalent pension structures in GB. The Department advises that the proposed rule is not subject to any further Assembly procedure. Any comments? 
If the members are content, say that the Committee has considered the Department of Finance's proposal for subordinate legislation, Pensions Increase Review Order in Northern Ireland 2021, and is content to note the proposed legislation. Is this agreed? Agreed? Agreed. agreed. I move on to the next item, SL1, the Public Service P- Pensions Revaluation Order in Northern Ireland 2021. That the Department proposes to make a statutory rule under the Public Service Pensions Act Northern Ireland 2014. The prose rule is at page 150, will increase career average revalued earnings public service pension schemes from April 2021 by 0.5% in line with the Consumer Price Index Plus, an additional revaluation percentage determined by the individual pension schemes. HM Treasury makes a similar order to provide for equivalent pension schemes in Great Britain. The rule is subject to negative resolution assembly procedure. Are we content? Therefore, that the Committee has considered the Department of Finance's proposal for subordinate legislation, the Public Service Pensions Revaluation Order in Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the proposed legislation, and is content for the Department to make the rule. Is this agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Uh, SL1, the Regional Rates Order. Inform members that the Department proposes to make a statutory rule under the Rates Northern Ireland Order in 1977. Proposed rules at page 154 is to come into effect on the day after it is affirmed by the Assembly. The rule will stipulate the regional rate for domestic and non-domestic domestic property expressed in pence per pound for the 2021-22 rating year. The Executive has proposed to freeze the regional rate for domestic and non-domestic properties in 21-22. The rule is subject to affirmative resolution Assembly procedure. Members, do we have any views? Okay, if we can, we'll move on then. The Committee has considered the Department for Finance's proposal for subordinate legislation, the Regional Rates Order, and has no objection to the proposed legislation and is content for the Department to make the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. SR 2121, the Rates Coronavirus Making of District Rates Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. Inform members that at its meeting on 20 January 2021, the Committee considered the SL1 relating to the above rule. The Department has made the rule at page 158 under powers conferred by Article 8 of the Rates, Northern Ireland Order, 1977. This requires district councils to set district rates for the following year. The Committee had no, ob- uh, no objection to the rule being made. The Department advises that the policy content is unchanged. The rule is subject to negative resolution, assembly procedure, and is led, uh, is led in breach of the 21-day rule. The examiner of statutory rules has no other comments to make on the rule. The rule will come into operations on 5 February 2021, so as to allow district councils more time to consider those factors which will determine the levels at which district rates need to be set in order to meet council costs. The rule will extend the deadline for setting rates from 15 February to 1 March, and is reported as being made in response to requests from district councils. I think that is something we are all aware of. The Department previously advised that related parallel legislation is to be made by the Department of Communities. Members, are we content? Therefore, the Committee for Finance has considered Statutory Rule 2021-21, the Rates Coronavirus Making of District Rates Regulations Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to this rule. Is it agreed? Agreed. I would like to inform members that the Minister has written at page 16 of tabled papers to indicate a further rule will be brought forward shortly, which will remove the statutory conversion factors and will afford district councils the option of making separate decisions in relation to their domestic and non-domestic rate setting. 
as opposed to making one decision on how much rates will, be, will change across both domestic and non-domestic district rates. This is designed to maximise the options available to district councils in managing their tax base in the context of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Are we content to note the correspondence? Content and agreed. Statute Rail 2124, the rate, Coronavirus Emergency Relief Number 2 Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. The Committee considered the, statutory, uh, considered the related SL1 at its meeting on 20 January 2021. The Department has made an urgent statutory rule at page 164 under powers conferred by Article 31C of the Rates Northern Ireland Order 1977. This allows the Department to reduce rates in respect of uh, specified hereditaments. The rule is to come into operation as soon as possible in order to include manufacturing premises within the scope of the 2021-12 month rates holiday. This necessitated a breach of the 21-day convention. The examiner's statutory rules has no other comments to make on the rule. The Department has subsequently written at page 169 to indicate that the made rule extends these provisions to include local newspaper production facilities at a cost of 600,000 of COVID-19 funding allocated under January monitoring. A newspaper is defined as a daily Sunday or local newspaper circulating in Northern Ireland. The rule is subject to negative resolution assembly procedure. The committee had previously indicated that it had no objection to the rule being made. Matthew, you have a particular uh, issue in local newspapers and they do that as well. Would you like to make a comment or are you content? Content. Please that it's okay. happening. Excellent. Okay. Noted. Uh, members, therefore, uh, that the Committee for Finance has considered Statutory Rule 2124, the Rates Coronavirus Emergency Relief No. 2 Amendment Regulations, Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. agreed. Uh, Statutory Rule 2125, the Superannuation Commission for Survivors of Institutional Abuse Order, Northern Ireland 2021. The Committee considered the related SL1 at its meeting on 20 January 21. The Department has made the statutory rule under powers conferred by the Superannuation Northern Ireland Order 1972. The rule will make pension provisions under the Principal Civil Service Pension Scheme Northern Ireland, i.e. the Alpha Scheme, for the Commissioner for Survivors of Institutional, for the Commissioner for Survivors of Institutional Childhood Abuse. The rule comes into effect on February 2021, but it appears that the Department intends to imply the provision retrospectively from the 2nd of November 2020. It is understood that the Commissioner's term of employment commenced from the 14th of December 2020 for a five-year term. The Committee previously had no objections to the rule being made. The rule is subject to negative resolution assembly procedure. The Examiner's statutory rule has no comments to make on this rule. Are we content? The Committee, yeah. therefore, the committee for Finance has considered Statutory Rule 2125, the Superannuation Commission for Survivors of Institutional Abuse Order Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objections to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Moving swiftly on to correspondence. Um, we're still on the spotlight, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Nobody's dropped out. Where's Pat? Uh, Pat has left, but he's just advised me. So he's, uh, oh, his Pat has left. Okay. okay. We're still correct? Yeah, we, we definitely are. are. Okay. Um, I'll draw members' attention to the index of correspondence on page 180. Uh, Department of Finance, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, asked members to note a response from the DSO at page 183 declining to provide legal advice to the Committee on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It is understood that discussions between the DSO and Assembly Legal Services, etc., may be happening shortly. Any comments? 
Agree to note? Agreed. Uh, the Construction Employers Federation submission on the Public Procurement Common Framework. Draw members' attention to the response to the Committee at page 186 under the Public Procurement Common Framework, expressing concerns in respects of under-threshold opportunities and the possibility of the exclusion of Northern Ireland firms from GB procurement and seeking clarity and access to Northern Ireland public procurement. Do we have any comments? I think we should. I would be happy to write to the department seeking clarity on under-threshold opportunities. Are we agreed? Matthew, you want to say something? Yeah, um, yeah I would just be interested in um, uh, so what their... I mean, there shouldn't be any reason why... I'm interested to discover why they are... Is the, is the under-threshold concern an existing one? Because there's nothing, there's nothing in either Brexit or specifically the protocol which should doesn't touch on this stuff. It doesn't touch on construction and, and procurement. So um, uh, it would be interesting to, to understand why. But then specifically also um, on... Uh, it, it, there's, the, so there is a... A question about um, procurement in the, from the Republic for Northern uh, Ireland um, builders, basically. So, I don't know if our proposal is to write and get. It would be helpful to get clarity on both what their concern, if their concern is in, is specifically because they think the Common Framework document in the UK isn't well enough drafted, but then also discover what their concerns are in relation to, um, you know. Yeah. Losing business in the Republic or potentially losing businesses because it's just not clear from their document what they're concerned. Well, it's are. interesting. The uh, Construction Employers Federation are coming to speak to us on the 24th, or is that going to shift to the 17th? 24th. 24th. On the on the 24th, so we can ask them there when they come to do that. Okay. Uh, next one: BT Digital Transformation and Landward co Contracts. Uh, draw members' attention to the correspondence from BT, the page at 109, regarding the digital transformation and landweb contracts. This matter is still under consideration by the PAC. Are we happy to share this correspondence with the PAC? Are we agreed? Agreed. <laughs> uh, Department of Finance, Building Regulations, en Energy Performance of Nearly Zero Energy New Buildings. Draw members' attention to a briefing paper from the Department of page 192 regarding proposals to amend statutory building regulations guidance to improve energy efficiency performance requirements for new buildings. New guidance is complex. Involve changes to ventilation specifications and the displacement of oil or gas heating by the use of heat pumps for nearly zero energy buildings. Um, members, do we have any comments? Um, I think one thing that I've learned in this committee uh, when I thought I would be dealing quite a lot with budgets and finance issues as well is that building regulations, and there is an, an awful lot in them that I think we need to keep ourselves well abreast and informed in. And uh, one of the things I would like to ask for is a wish to seek, I would like to seek a written briefing at the start of the consultation period and an oral briefing summarising responses at the conclusion of this uh, and prior to any final decision making, because I think there are quite a lot of very complex issues here that we need to be aware of, because I think they're interlinked with some of the other things we've been involved in, particularly on building regulations. Are we content? Are we agreed? Agreed. Department of Finance COVID support schemes ask members to note response from the Department of Finance page uh, 212 in respect of various COVID support schemes. The previous Department for Economy response is also appended and was considered at the meeting on the 3rd of February. 
I uh, just want to draw your attention. I had a conversation with the chair of the Economy uh, Committee, and she expresses our concerns as well with the, the ones, and I, I think we probably used a slightly un, um, unfortunate turn of phrase last week, but the people are falling through the cracks. But there is a real issue here that we need to be able to support parts of our economy that is in real danger of not being able to get through this COVID, uh, COVID situation. And bearing in mind that the minister is looking for uh, 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 reasons to be giving support. One of the things I would like to do is to continue that conversation with the department, with the economy committee, and to encourage both the ministry for the minister of finance and the minister of economy to do everything in their powers to get the money out to those who are falling through the cracks as much as we can. I think if we would be agreed to that, mm -hmm. agreed. Uh, next one, state aid, COVID support for airports. I'd like to draw members' attention to a response from the department of page 226. Indicating that support to the airports after the 1st of January 2021 does not have to comply with state aid rules as services are not covered by the Northern Ireland Protocol but must comply with UK Government guidance. The Department advises that a further £2.2 million has been allocated to support the airports. The associated regulations are expected to be changed. Further information in respect to state aid, including the link to the UK guidance, including the six principles and the use of the transparency website has been circulated by the clerk. Are we agreed and do we understand the provisions of the six principles? I think we are agreed. Uh, moving on to the Committee for Justice, Damages, Return on Investment Bill. Uh, draw members' attention to correspondence for the Committee for Justice on page 230. This is a copy of a letter sent to the Minister of Finance regarding accelerated passage for the damages return on investments bill. The Committee of Justice advises that the Minister of Finance has sought HM Treasury cover for additional costs associated with a new legislative framework to set the personal injury discount rate. Pending confirmation on this and other matters, Committee for Justice members appear to be undecided or unhappy in respect to the use of accelerated passage on this particular issue. I am just asking the members if we wish to write to the Department of Finance asking to be copied into the response to the extent of this related liability, as estimated by uh, the GAD and confirmation by HMS, HM Treasury. I think we would be agreed to that. Agreed. Just, uh, on, just on that, uh, I uh, declare an interest as a member of the Justice Committee, but I am not convinced that the direction of travel for which the Minister has encountered here with regards to the model is the correct one. So there is a fundamental issue about the bill, let alone uh, pushing through for accelerated passage. I have, by default, I would be opposed to all accelerated passage uh, unless it was a very clear-cut issue. But the fact that this is now not a clear-cut issue, uh, I would not be of support of, of the accelerated passage piece. There will be a burden, a cost burden, on this. Uh, the Minister of Justice says, well, she shouldn't take that into account. But I think the Assembly as a whole has to take into account any financial implications for any piece of legislation, so, uh, and also the framework for which people who have been damaged uh, through no fault of their own gets uh, a rate of return. That is a fundamental issue going forward, and we need to get it right. So again, uh, it's not that we're confused in the Justice Committee; it's that we're not convinced that accelerated passage. Uh, and it should be 
should be countered into and that we're not convinced that this model for which the, the Minister has decided to go down is the, the appropriate one. So there's still a lot of questions and a lot of work for the Justice Committee to do in that regard. Okay, thanks very much, Andrew. Agreed on that one. Uh, item 15.9, a member of the public restricted correspondence. I want to take that in closed session. And Paul, if can I have your indulgence if you would chair that particular part because of a of a conflict of interest I would have, and I would, uh, if you were content to do that. Okay, just let me. So that's five point nine. Yeah, fifteen point nine. Yeah. Uh, so it's at. So picking page, up page two hundred and thirty-eight. Page hundred and two hundred and thirty-eight. Two hundred and thirty-eight. Yeah, that'll be in closed session. Okay, are you going? I, I'm happy to do it. Are you wanting to do it now, or you want to? No, no, we'll do it. We're doing, we're no doing problem. Closed session, but I just fine. wanted to make sure you're. No, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, item uh, 15.11, 15.12. It's about the Sole Authority Budget Act and Sole Authority Budget Act. Um, it's correspondence that's come through, but I notice our expert on sole authorities and black boxes various. Uh, Mr. Alistair isn't here, and conscious of sort of the time pressures we on. I would like to, I, with your approval, I would retable that for next week, because I think it's quite a complex and technical issue, and I think it would be useful if we uh, had the opportunity to discuss it in some more detail, if we're content. Content? Can we also um, write about the uh, government resources and accounts act? Yes, that's it. Sorry. And sorry. Um, and we also to note correspondence received from the department indicating confirmation. The suggested changes to the estimate document will be made in the next iteration in respect to the sole authority of the Budget Act. Um, can we have authority to write to the Department seeking an update on the progress of the Bill amending the Government Resources and Accountants Act Northern Ireland uh, 2001? Are we agreed? Agreed. Moving on to 15.13, Department of Finance, the annual report of lay observer for Northern Ireland 2019-20. Obviously, one of the great things about this committee is we get to learn about all sort of different sorts of aspects of things. And I hadn't realised this came into our purview, but obviously it does. Uh, draw members' attention to the annual report of the Lay Observer for Northern Ireland 2019-20 at page 371. Sets out complaints in respect of the Law Society for Northern Ireland. This comes to the committee as the Department of Finance is the sponsoring body. I would like to seek your agreement to copy the report to the Committee for Justice and write to the Department seeking an update on the progress of the secondary legislation relating to the Legal Complaints and Regulations Northern Ireland 26 Act, Northern Ireland 2016, which establishes the role of the Legal Services Oversight Commissioner. Uh, are we agreed? Great. Thank agreed. you. Uh, draw members' attention to the composite request at 300, page 396. There was an error on page 397, the paragraph about OECD commenting in Northern Ireland Government should, of course, have been removed in line with the committee's agreement last week, which it was, and that was in the correspondence that signed off. Are we agreed? Great. Great. Move on. Chair, to the, yep, go ahead. Chair, Chair, can I make a point? Uh, yeah, I know that uh, you said that um, uh, when you came to the uh, uh, 1510-1511 about sole authority and that uh, Mr. Alistair wasn't present, so therefore you're uh, putting it back into next week. Uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, that uh, we all get the agenda. It's our responsibility to be here. And if someone chooses not to be here at that point in time, there isn't any reason why it should be put back. 
uh, let's say some other issue just uh, maybe that might have come up um, and maybe the chair might not be in as big a hurry to put it back, we'll say, to ensure the presence of some other member. Uh, and I think it's a dangerous precedent to be set. Okay. Thank you. Julie noted, and of course I will give latitude to other members with other areas of technical expertise come up as, as we go through in the committee. Um, if we move to the forward work programme, uh, forward work programme, page 404. Sorry, you were saying that the Construction Employers Federation? 24th, sorry. It's 24th, 24th is right. All right, so it's 24th is right. So that, that stays the same then? Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, also agree to write to the Department seeking clarity in all executive primary legislation for the Committee for Finance, which is expected in this mandate. Are we agreed to that? Agreed. Uh, any other business? Uh, Chair, I was just wondering if we are... Um, in, in respect of the, in the table papers, the correspondence on fiscal council, um, if it is true that we are going to get fiscal council being set up, or at least detailed fiscal council by the end of the financial year, I would, I wonder if we should be writing back for um, urgent. Uh, now, advanced Asian finance minister intends to bring a paper to the. Um, if we should have a hearing on it before the end of the financial year. Yeah. Well, the minister has has assured us that as soon as he's uh, appointed the council, he's had the details and the rest of it. And the minister is on record as that he'll come to the committee and explain to the committee what the process is and what the fin fiscal council is going to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I take the minister very much at his word, and I have, I have no doubt whatsoever. As soon as um, he has finished the negotiations with the HM Treasury and is nominated of the people, the, the very next people he'll be talking to will be this committee. Statement. Sorry, Paul. Uh, Chair, I, I just wondered if uh, Matthew had finished there because he was. I finished. Sorry, <laughs> I, just I know it's hard to tell sometimes. Uh, so, uh, on, on this point, so it is in the new decade, new approach that we're going to have a fiscal council. But we have had dialogue in this committee as to what a fiscal council should look like, mm -hmm. what it should do, what its remit would be, what its roles and responsibilities would be. And I think we have a part to play in that mm. as a finance committee. But yet, it seems to be the case that after months and months of nothing happening, all of a sudden something is happening. And whilst I know they'll be delicate, well, I think, sir, I think, Mr. Deputy, to um, to give to be fair to the minister, he's for the best part of a year. He said that he was going to let us know within a week. So I suppose we're just continuously doing that. But at least now we've got an end time rather than a, just next week. But I suppose what I don't want to see happening is that someone came in here from the department with a fait accompli, uh, with a Fiscal Council set up, sewn up, done and dusted, and we're told what it's going to look like, what it's going to do, and all of that. Now, whilst that will still be movement and progress, I think they'll have missed a trick because I think that we have spoken about this in the past as to what it should be, what it should do, how big should a Fiscal Council be even, how much will it cost. All of these factors need to be factored in yet, and whilst there will be this responsibility from the Minister uh, negotiating with the 
the government uh, and the adjoining ministers on this issue, you know, we, I don't think we have set a settled view in this committee as to what that fiscal council should look, look like. And we've looked at other models. I think we looked mm. at the Welsh model, the, uh, the, the UK model, and all of that. So, you know, well, we had the OBR report, yes. and we had the report came back about um, sort of the Welsh model and using Bangor University and how that was looked at as well. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should delay. I'm not saying that, and, I, and, and the responsibility will be with the finance minister. But I'm just wondering, is he missing a trick by not engaging with this committee throughout the process of appointing a fiscal council? Or is he just going to come here with his officials and say, here's, what's, here's what we have done and this is what they will do? Uh, again, I just think we're missing a trick. Matthew, do you want to come in there? Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I basically agree with Paul in the sense that we are we will definitely have to have a big role to play in this thing getting organised. Now, we don't know, presumably there will be a statement, but there are just lots of questions to be answered, including my my assumption would have been that this would have had some kind of statutory footing, maybe not. The question would be, you know, if it doesn't have statutory footing, if it's just a lock of boys, to use a, a country <laughs> expression, sort of saying what X, Y and Z about, and there's not necessarily, you know, but that is obviously clearly less independent by its very nature because it's if it if, you know if it's a, a sort of a, an appointed group of people n n n without grounding legislation but with a memorandum of understanding or terms of reference sort of just submitted to the assembly that would probably necessarily be less rigorous um, than than it might otherwise be and there are other questions about one of fiscal commission is there going to be one of fiscal commission looking at powers are they going to have economic forecasting powers and mm. um, does it you know a la the the congressional budget office in the states for example do they have a a role uh, to advise the assembly or assembly committees and a kind of is there an interaction there so i think there are a lot of um, important questions i I'm, like i'm keen to see the, the thing get up and running in some form but i also think there's loads of questions here but um that are, um, I am interested in them in a geeky way, but I also think they're they're important and need discussion. So, I would be worried that it, that if it's just a tick box, that this, there's a few people being appointed to, in order to fulfil one NDNA commitment, that we aren't getting the most out the the, the most out of the, the idea. Well, sort of bearing in mind the minister, minister has said that he's going to keep us fully informed of the process, and he's been very clear about that. I think maybe in that case, I don't think we'd have any objections to writing to the the minister and saying, can we have a, an update? on how this is being formed and say we would really appreciate being fully involved in the discussion process about the formation of the Fiscal Council, the membership of the Fiscal Council, its terms of reference and whether you know, there is any views on putting it in a legislative framework. I think that would be, I think, and that would be very much in tune with what the Minister has sort of, um, been pointing out to us all the way through that he would wish to be involved in that dialogue. And I think I think we would be content to do that. Are we agreed? Yep. yep. Chair, are you going to circulate a letter to us on that? Say again. I see you broke up there a bit. Are you going to be circulating a letter to us again on that that you're addressing to the minister? Yes. You, you, yeah. You, yeah, because you included quite quite a number of things there. Uh, and we were disappointed just at that lack of confidence that we were expressing, maybe even uh, in our minister, given that uh, he's been very clear in his uh, statements uh, in relation to the Fiscal Council. Yeah, I fully, 
I fully agree. We're, we're here to help the minister, and we're here to make sure that uh, the minister is. Uh, no, we are. We are here. We are, Tim. We are. So, steady, steady, Mr. Wells. We are here to work collegiately with the minister on this issue. You know, the fiscal council is something that he's expressed an interest in all the way through. We've expressed an interest in all the way through, and working collaboratively together. Indeed, as the permanent secretary said that she wishes to do so, I think this is a great opportunity for one of the most important things that. Potentially for Northern Ireland. Yep, also, I think I think that I think the the minister would welcome that. Just to echo your comments, Chair. Just to just to add to your comments, we're here to support and advise the department. Yeah. Okay. And just before we go into closed session, uh, the next. Uh, are you aware of the fact that the assembly is not sitting next Monday, members of the committee? Right. Sort of. Just just so that you're uh, keeping up to date. Uh, next meeting, uh, 17th of February at uh, uh, 1400 here in the Senate Chamber and in Starley. Uh, we're about to go into private session. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber programme signed.